Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered Chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games, so join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The gunship denied the first two requests. And they were like, dude, you, you guys have to figure out how to move back. Like, I mean, you're so danger close, we're going to kill you. Yeah. And um, and my team lead called back and was like, bro, like, there's no place to go. There's nothing. Like, it's nothing but empty Iraqi desert. Like, we got dudes that are bleeding out and we're running out of ammo. The gunfight lasted about 40 minutes, I guess. You come too. Is is the gunfight still taking place over top of you when you wake up? Is it still you're just like holy fucking shit? Yeah. The first volley of rounds took out the machine gunner that was uh, well at least injured him. I could hear he stopped firing, and I could hear him yelling. Got up and walked to the helicopter. I, I told him, um, <laughs> kind of funny shit you think about, but I was like, dude, grab my arm and grab my helmet. I remember walking to the helo and like I was I was hunched over because I was bleeding so badly and I just to this day I can still kind of see this visual of all this blood just pouring out of my face. I started to let go and I just remember like this darkness and just drifting off. But right about that moment, I felt this tug on my left side and I kind of look up uh, and this nurse is standing there and yells out. He's still got a bomb on him. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 21 years on active duty, 18 of which as a U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, he conducted six deployments, that's six deployments, and was awarded a Bronze Star with V, as well as a Purple Heart, and also earned a Ranger Tab, which you best believe we're going to get into that shit. He is the CEO of Soft Spoken and Eagle Rise Speakers Network. He makes to- <clears throat> Tony Robbins look half asleep, and he's so bionic they call him the $6 billion man. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Jason Redman. Mike, what's up, brother? Thanks for having me, man. Sure, thanks for coming. So uh, what, what brings you to Dallas, uh, and, what, and to what do we owe the pleasure of you uh, being able to come on? Yeah, man, I was down here uh, speaking for an event, obviously one of the big things that I do. Not a whole lot of uh, live events going on right now, so it was yeah. kind of cool to be able to come down here and actually do that. Did a uh, workshop with a group here, 
And actually, it was really cool because my son got to come with me. He ended oh, up sure. DJing the same event. That's a, <laughs> that's a first for us that, that we right? worked an event together. Yeah. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products, actually, within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just an all-around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all Mic Drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code MICDROP at checkout. That's two words, MICDROP at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD. And all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. Uh, in terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And Resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well, personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean and off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. So your, your son uh, spins on the ones and twos or what? Uh, he does. He's heavy into that he, shit? He is, and he's really good. I mean, yeah, cool. um, you know, he he's crushing it. He's won quite a few contests. In, really? Uh, yeah, Virginia Beach area. And uh, how, So how does how does one judge a DJ contest? Is it like surfing where it's kind of uh, subjective, like it's a, basically an opinion, or is there like a metric used to? No, it's, it's totally opinion-driven. So yeah. you have other influencer personalities, DJs, you know, at the higher end of the spectrum that come from different clubs in the different areas. Oh, okay. that, and basically they're the judges. Yeah. Um, although interesting, he won this really big, he came in second in this really big contest and I, and it was a good lesson for him. And it was a lesson in life for a lot of people. He learned a lesson in strategy because he came out of the gates with almost everything he had in the beginning, yeah. came out super strong and crushed everybody but because there were additional heats that had to go on by the time he got to the finals he had pretty much showed off all his skills yeah and the guy that won slow roll 
he saved all his best stuff for the end. Did, did you uh, put your arm around him and have the you know the the old bull and the young bull? I did. Going <laughs> to run run yeah. down and fuck him, fuck one of the uh, the cows. He's like, no, we're going to walk down and fuck them all. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. said, uh, I, don't Matt, go too big, too fast. Yeah. You got. <laughs> I, I had no idea that uh, that there was that much to DJing. Like that, there's heats and fucking competitions and shit. I didn't didn't realize that. My brother's a fucking DJ too. That shows you what a shitty brother sibling I am. Mean, <laughs> I, I don't think he's ever done competitions, or at least if he has, he hasn't, hasn't mentioned them. Joe, you get back to me on that, goddammit. Uh, what's your best childhood memory? Ah, that's a great question. Um, man. I, I, You know, I think my best childhood memory was uh, my parents were divorced and, you know, like many kind of a crazy separated family and we didn't have a lot of money but my mom by happenstance ended up in the virgin islands and uh so you know every summer and even for a period of time i lived with her and one summer when i was 13 she chartered a sailboat and my best friend got to go with me and my oldest sister and my mom and we sailed through the British Virgin Islands for a week. No shit. Yeah. And this captain taught me and my buddy how to sail. He, he was like, you guys are going to sail. And taught us how to sail. And we just island hopped every day, man. We went from island to island and sleeping on the deck at night and sailing in the day and literally cooking. Yeah, that's cool as fuck. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say uh, the captain taught you how to wrestle down in the fucking... <laughs> he did. And I'm a little uncomfortable about that. I don't want to talk about that. He kept inviting me into the shower. I got my introduction to the sailor life. <laughs> He, he painted a fucking uh, a French mustache on my lower back. I still don't understand why. <laughs> yeah. I, I earned my sea yeah, legs. Fucking a, did. And crisscrossed him around his fucking neck, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, what is the, the funniest memory you have of, of any of your own children? Uh, there's, there's a couple. Um, I would definitely say... Um, my son, after I got wounded, we were uh, we were sitting there and he was doing homework. He was probably, I don't know, eight or nine at this point. Probably nine, because I, I think he was eight when I got wounded. And I was helping him with some homework and I'm still all bagged up, man. I got hardware and I, th I might have even still been traked at that point. And uh, he's sitting there doing his homework and he's like thinking, and I'm thinking he's thinking about the problem or something. I'm like, what's up, dude? You know, you, you hitting, you're hitting a problem where, you know, you need some help. And he goes, dad, he's like, you know, he said, if you'd been blown up and walked away from that, he's like, you'd be a legend. <laughs> and I was like, wow, man. I'm like, you know, dad got all shot up yeah. and, you know, I did walk away from that. So and, you know, yeah, there's, liver, yeah, there's a lot of people that think that's pretty impressive. You know, I mean, I'm still here. And he goes, yeah, but if it'd been a bomb. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I got, uh, I got demoted in my yeah. son's eyes cause it wasn't a bomb. And, uh, yeah. and then the other funny one is my daughter, when we got to meet president Bush, um, we, we, we got to go in and, and he was awesome, man. He was so gracious and just spent like 35 minutes with me and my family. And they gave the kids these little white house goodie bags and they had, you know, like little postcards about government and the white house and their dogs and the white house m&ms and other stuff like that well uh there was supposed to be a kaleidoscope in the bag my 
son had one, my youngest daughter had one, and my middle daughter, who is by far my most like... She called him out, didn't it? Dude, well, <laughs> but she, which not, in, not at first, what she did, I mean, crazy, like she must have realized it immediately, like, I don't have a kaleidoscope. So she didn't say a word. She just kind of sat there quietly. And then right about the time when we were like wrapping up and we're like, hey, we got to go, you know, we thank Mr. President. And she she marched right up, like literally marched up and almost stood on top of his shoes and looks up at him and holds the bag up and goes, Mr. President, I don't have a kaleidoscope in my bag. She was five. Dude, and uh, yeah, great. dude, we were like mortified, like, oh my God. But then I was thinking about it. I was like, damn, this kid's smart. Like, yeah. you know, who do I go to in this room? Like the aide, like this, like yeah. that, mom or dad. No, I'm going to the most powerful yeah, man in the free the world. Man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Kids are fucking wizards with inventory that way. You know, like if it's a good deal, like, I mean, honestly, like, fuck the labor laws you ought to hire kids to do inventory because those little bastards don't fucking miss a thing yeah like yeah you can't get anything past them yeah. um does pineapple belong on pizza i am not a fan personally i mean do you have like heartburn with it where i mean no 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 i would like want to fight no 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 I'm, I'm not like that i will eat if it's on there but it's not my jam i do yeah. not order a pizza with pineapple yeah. on it all right uh what's your favorite vacation spot any uh, ski mountain on the western side of the uh, Rockies and West. Oh, shit. So, any, oh, yeah. Any of them. I mean, you know, Colorado. Uh, I love any of the mountains in, uh, in Montana. I love, uh, obviously, Utah. I mean, I love skiing. It's probably my number one favorite uh, hobby. So anytime we can go. We do East Coast skiing, you know, it's uh, but it's not the same. It's yeah. It's good, but it's not as good as West Coast. Yeah. Are you, uh, do you snowboard at all? Or is that like fucking. I did. So I snowboarded. So I started out skiing, then I switched snowboarding. But after I got wounded without being able to bend this arm, um, you know, if anybody out there snowboards and you've hit a really fast downhill edge and it whipsaws you into the ground, uh, I can't stop. I can't, no, I, I, I can't, uh, absorb that shock. Yeah. Like I would just break this arm. So it kind of made me decide I was going to go back to skiing and I'm yeah. stuck to that. And with the skiing, like the, uh, the poles, you can, you can, uh, minimize or, or buffer the fucking fall. Yeah. That. Cause skiing, you tend to fall, even if you pitch forward, it's typically at an angle, you know, it's pretty rare that you, you know, with your skis out front that you literally pitch and then would come down, yeah. you know, typically you kind of go to at an angle. It shows you how how fuck all little I know about skiing and snowboarding. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've snowboarded once, and it was awesome. I loved it. But uh, we were in uh, where were we? Tahoe at Heavenly. Yeah, yeah, it's great, nice. Great yeah, place, Heavenly's but, great. Uh, Vale's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the back bowls of Vale yeah. are, and if anybody out there, if you're a skier and you've never been to Vale, go to Vale. Most people stay on the front of the mountain, dude. You can spend. My daughter and I one day we went just the two of us and went on a trip. Uh, we covered 46 miles in a day in the back bowls of Vail. 46 fucking miles. God damn. That's a, and that's not telemark. Like that's downhill. It was that. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yep. It just back and forth across <clears throat> the mountain up the lifts. So God damn. Uh, what does your morning routine look like? Uh, barring tra you know, sans travel, like just normal at home. What, what does that typical morning look like? So, uh, up at four, I get up and I, Jesus, eat. you're a Jocko guy. Well, not intentionally. I will tell you that I'm I'm not doing it to uh, you know uh, compete with Jocko or anything like that. It just kind of happened, and a lot of it has to do with the fitness goals that I had. It just seems like I keep getting up earlier and earlier. It used to be, 
you know, I got up around six was the average and then it became five and now it's become four because the coach I'm working with, the only time he had to fit me in was 5 a.m. Oh, I got you. So up at four, I eat. Uh, usually I kind of look at my day, start looking at that. And then I head to the gym, do that 5 a.m. workout. I come back. I usually like to do some reading, uh, do some organizing for the day. And then uh, I usually try and launch right into what is my um, the one thing, that big thing that I need to get done for the day. Right now, it's a new program I'm working on, but it could be, you know, whether it's a book you're writing or maybe it's a new presentation you're working on. Yeah. Do you uh, typically go to bed super early, getting up that early? Or? I, I am. I mean, typically I try to be in bed by 930, yeah. um, 10. I mean, my goal is to get at least six hours of sleep. I, I know myself that if I start getting consistently less than, I can function on five fine and I do pretty good, but six is really ideal and I'd love to get seven. Yeah. So, Which is interesting because we've always been night owls. So my wife and I, um, so you're throwing a real wrench in her. Oh, she's gear, like, huh? she's like, you're, you're screwing us up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's awesome to hear about it. I'm sure she's fucking pissed and giving you a hard time. Oh, she is. Uh, yeah. Before we get into kind of some of your backstory, I want to take a, a quick second to, uh, to introduce my producer, Zach, who, uh, he's going to be chiming in. Hi, Zach. Hey, thanks for, uh, having me on. Yeah. He, uh, he's been doing a phenomenal job, uh, for about 10 episodes now and has really kicked it up to the next level. Can't thank him enough, and uh, there there may be times where he chimes in or or we ask him something. So uh, just uh, for for those of you listening, that's uh, that's who he is and uh, and what he does. Also, in that same vein, he produces another show with a good friend of mine where where I sit in on it uh, called Uninfluenced. Uh, it's on iTunes and YouTube as well. Uh, it's it's kind of a combination of just shooting the shit um, and talking a lot about cars and motorcycles and shit like that. I uh, have gotten into the those types of um, I don't know, pastime activities over the last couple of years. And, uh, and a good friend of mine that, uh, he and I kind of go back and forth car and bike wise wanted to, uh, to have kind of a platform to just shoot the shit and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, talk about what we're, what we're up to that way, as well as, you know, getting into politics and, and just telling funny stories and, and whatever. So, uh, for those of you that are, are constantly asking when the, when the next episode is, in the meantime, you can supplement with uh, Uninfluenced. Uh, and again, that's uh, it's on YouTube and iTunes and all the other uh, assholes out there that uh, that play play our stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, new episodes every Wednesday. There you go. Yes. You, you heard it from the source. Uh, all right. You're, in terms of your childhood, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about just where you're from and kind of what growing up was like. Other than the uh, Virgin Islands trip. We were right, there. right. The captain. Yeah. Captain, my captain. The one-eyed captain. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I had a, uh, you know, uneventful for the most part childhood. I mean, I was not, you know, being abused. I mean, my parents were divorced. Um, so at a pretty young age and, um, you know, it was kind of one of the things I definitely probably learned from a young age and something my wife and I both share. She came from a, uh, dysfunctional family and so did I both parents divorced both sides and both of us had to bounce back and forth between those parents and, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, <clears throat> um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pressure, you know, you would get the bullshit from your parents, you know, they would draw negative comments about each other and all that. So basically, at least when I got older, both of us were like, hey, that ain't gonna, that ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. 
you know, we definitely, um, you know, bouncing back and forth. I mean, I was fortunate enough to live in the Virgin Islands, but uh, it was my mom's job that brought her there. You know, we didn't we didn't have a whole lot. You know, we did OK. Uh, and then, you know, I would bounce back and forth to my dad and we lived, um, you know, on an old uh, tobacco farm in southern North Carolina. So, um, you know, for the most part, I just kind of learned a good work ethic and patriotism. I mean, on that farm, I learned how to weed and hoe a garden and clear brush and all these other things that I think did teach me, you know, some good things yeah. about, you know, breaking a sweat and working. But uh, other than that, it was probably it. I mean, I did learn my, my, I learned a lot about patriotism. My family was military, um, not while I was young, but my dad, before I came along was army. And I just stories about my grandfathers on both sides fought in World War II. Uh, my great uncle was killed in World War II. Do you, know, so, do you know the circumstances? Yeah, he was shot down in the Pacific. He oh, was sure. uh, he was a uh, pilot um, flying a single engine uh, and got shot down in that oh. campaign over there. And then my dad's dad actually was a B-24 pilot and miraculously uh, wow. flew all his missions, uh, even even got shot down and crash landed the uh, the aircraft in Yugoslavia, saved everybody. They landed in a snowfield. It was in oh, the damn. winter. Um, and I verified this cause there is an article, you know, we have a newspaper article where they highlighted him in the town news over what yeah. happened. Wow. So, yeah, that's a trip. Uh, yeah. in terms of the bouncing back and forth between so the Southern part of North Carolina and Virgin islands, what was the, the split like ballpark? Oh, the amount of time. Yeah. Usually I would go to my mom's in the summer and it was kind of weird. My dad actually got custody of us when they divorced. Uh, so a lot, oftentimes uh, when my mom was in the Virgin Islands, we'd be in the summer, I'd go with her. There's a period of time I went and lived with her for about um, a <clears throat> year and a half, maybe two years, right before Hurricane Hugo in the 90s. I think it was 90 or 89 that Hugo hit uh, the Virgin Islands and destroyed our house. Uh, there was nothing left of our house other than literally the foundation and my mom sent me off the island before hugo came uh, my mom was injured when hugo happened and this day to this day we don't know what happened she uh they found her the national guard found her wandering around with a head injury god damn and uh they they medevaced her off the island to miami and uh they landed and took her to the hospital and uh they checked her out and the doctor was like it's a fucking miracle you survived that flight like you, she had a massive hematoma in her brain and he was like yeah it should have killed you at altitude holy fuck any uh, lasting effects no i mean she's uh she's doing good now um i worry because alzheimer's runs in our family yeah. and with a head injury that could be you know already uh an issue but you know my mom's doing good she's what 75 now living yeah. in colorado so yeah, that's awesome uh, does she smoke weed living in Colorado? All the time. No shit. I can't stop knocking. <laughs> like you had me go. I was like, no shit. Fucking go mom. At least not that I'm aware yeah, of. Yeah. I mean. No, she does the gummies. It's not so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you have siblings growing up? I did. I got uh, I got uh, three. Uh, so I've got a younger brother and then a uh, two older sisters. So I, I'm always curious what, uh, what role or impact, uh, did they have on you growing up? You know, were you close with them? Did you fight with them? Did they influence you at all? Or? So we're really spread out and, 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 you know, in some way half siblings is kind of the way it all. So my, when my dad divorced, he remarried. So my younger brother is seven years younger. Um, so not too much of an impact. I mean, we're, we're not as close 
my my <clears throat> little I call her my little sister because she's little. But she's actually, we're Irish twins. I think we're 11 months apart. Oh, and I'm really close to her. We, we just, you know, everything we went through, you know, as we grew up, we were kind of together. And then my oldest sister, she's 10 years older than me. Oh, okay. So. Well, fucking right on. Um, did you play any sports growing up? I did. I played, uh, uh, I wrestled and played football, although I was a late bloomer. I did not start playing sports. Uh, I mean, I was literally the 95-pound weakling. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not that big a guy. Anybody that's listening, I'm about, you know, 5'8", 170. And, um, you know, literally at 16, I was still probably only five foot tall, 95 pounds. Yeah. And uh, I always loved football. I grew up watching football. And my dad was like, no, you're not going to play football. You're, you'll get hurt. And um, I don't know. Finally, one day when I was about, you know, 15, 16, uh, I had already decided I wanted to be a SEAL. And I was like, man, like I need to do stuff that's hard. So I told my dad, I'm like, I'm going to play football. And I hadn't played at all, dude. And, you know, here <laughs> I was, here I was this, you know, 100 pound kid out on the football field, just getting the shit knocked out of me. <laughs> but I, I never stopped. I mean, I kept doing it. And then from there, I started wrestling. And uh, I had funny, the I wrestled 119 pounds, 112 and then 119. Well, our 119 pounder was the state champion for North Carolina. Oh, wow. And he would just wipe the floor with me every practice. But um, but it was good. It taught me how it taught me a good mindset and, you know, taught me how to get my ass kicked, which yeah. uh, happened more times in my life later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, resiliency, I think, is uh, arguably one of, if not the uh, consummate fucking, you know, principle and, and character trait, I think, that uh, that's going to set people up for success, you know. So, uh, I mean, I know I, I've talked about it at length a number of times on the show with, you know, with delivering dogs to a lot of high net worth folks and, and kind of seeing the patterns that exist between them, the parallels that, uh, you know, that, that tend to uh, connect the, the clients that that's kind of the one thing that, that all of them have, you know, is, is just the same type of attitude that a lot of soft guys have of just, I don't give a fuck what happens. I'm just going to keep, I'll put my head down and keep driving, you know, and I'll, I'll figure it out, you know, and, and that, I mean, I, I can't, uh, say enough or overemphasize that uh, just how how important that is uh, you know especially in, in trying to develop young kids and, and what have you but um, were there any impactful moments um, that you haven't mentioned uh, growing up that kind of good or bad shaped who you are or, or why you decided to serve or, or anything like that no I mean I can't you know, kind of interesting. Like I said, I'm probably an, an you know, unlikely candidate to go off and become a SEAL. Um, I, I think more than anything, I probably just had a chip on my shoulder. Um, and, and I had that inner drive. Like if you told me I couldn't do something, it just kind of pissed me off and made me say, well, I want to prove you wrong. Yeah. Um, and that probably drove me more than anything else to do it. And yeah, I'm in alignment with your, your thought process. Yeah, I think more than any trait. I mean, I'm I'm not the smartest. As a matter of fact, I sometimes feel like I am a fucking slow learner. Like you know, people will tell me to do something, and like um, like I'll hear it, but I can't I can't make it work in my life. So I need to, you know, even though they told me don't go that way because you're gonna get the shit kicked out of you, yeah. I'll go that way probably at least two times 
get the shit kicked out of me both times and then finally be like, oh, yeah, right, that's what they were saying. <laughs> so, and it's just that ability to keep grinding forward yeah. that is, uh, yeah. you know, for me, that's enabled me to, you know, find success. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, in terms of motivation to serve, would you say that that was primarily driven from both grandparents or grandfathers rather? Yeah. And my dad, I mean, my dad was army. I mean, I just grew up, uh, always from a young age. I just wanted to, um, I was just attracted to service industries. So I was really interested when I was young and, uh, being a firefighter and then learning more about my grandparents in the military. I just kind of settled on that from a young age. Um, you know, GI Joe was big when, uh, Fucking you know, we were younger. So, yeah. you know, storm shadow and snake eyes. I was like, dude, that's what I want. Yeah. That's so. fucking great. That, yeah. I've talked about this too. Like there, there's such a lack of that nowadays, uh, you know, for, for young boys and, and young men to look up to in terms of pop culture influences as it relates to the MacGyvers, the Knight Riders, the fucking commandos, the Rambos. Like there, there just isn't any of that anymore. Well, well, there's this attack on masculinity and masculinity and this attack on this, what it is to be a man. Like there's nothing wrong to be tough and to be a warrior and to, uh, but you know, nowadays there's almost this vilification of yeah. like hard dudes and yeah. like stuff like that. The stuff that we grew up on, you know, this bullshit idea that, you know, kids should never play with, you know, toy guns or anything. Dude, I was running around the woods with toy guns. I mean, my yeah. whole life growing up. Yeah. Zach, I'm curious. You're quite a bit younger. What did you watch growing up? Uh, if you say Power fuck, Rangers? Power Rangers. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's better than Powder Puff Girls. I mean, yeah. I didn't know where we were going with that's, that. It's better than fucking Hello Kitty or whatever. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, maybe. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. But I mean, did, I guess, did you find, uh, not that we're directing the interview to you, but did you find that there were not a lot of options that way did, like did you ever find yourself thinking i wish there were more shit like that or did it not even register because there just wasn't you know it's a good question because you guys got about 15 years on me i'd imagine and like i didn't have anything cool like he-man in the 80s yeah. Yeah, man yeah. or gi joe it was all you know i don't want to say censored but Fucking it was it was Barney. soft edges right yeah it was all rounded off and yeah. and that was kind of a shame so uh so yeah i'm, I'm gonna say the answer is yes you wish you would have had some fucking cool guy stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah big time hey man teletubbies with a machine yeah. gun yeah fucking hey uh, <laughs> uh all right so when you graduated high school did you, you you mentioned being a firefighter can you walk us through kind of from graduation until you went into the navy no 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 the firefighter thing was when i was young oh, okay. i wanted to do that oh, yeah I, I did not ever uh i didn't ever do that um it was just something i wanted to do so yeah my path was i mean about the age of 15 i decided uh i wanted to become a seal and just set my sights on that um kind of interesting i uh Probably at 16, I walked into the recruiting office the first time, you know, <laughs> five foot one, like 105 pounds and was like, I want to be a SEAL. Yeah. Like, and well, there we was got this, a good admin job. For yeah, you. yeah. There was this old crusty. I mean, he was like the proverbial like Popeye boatswain's mate, like yeah. co covered in tattoos, crusty as fuck. And was just like, get the fuck out of here <laughs> and just chase me out of the office. That's fucking great. And I came back, yeah. you know several weeks later and was like, Hey man, I want to be a seal and chased me out of the office again and, and started becoming a pretty, pretty big prick to me. Yeah. And, um, so finally I was like, well, screw it. I'll go join the army. Cause the army kind of watched this happen. It was like, Hey man, you can yeah. be a green beret or a ranger. <laughs> so true story. I actually went down the path to be in the army 
And when I went to MEPS, um, I failed the airborne physical because oh, sure. I, yeah, because I had had my eardrum reconstructed when I was a kid and they said, well, you can't equalize. Well, I knew I could because I'd grown up in the Virgin Islands diving and doing all this. So, um, so I told the army, well, unless I can get an airborne slot, like I'm not joining the army. Yeah. So that pissed a recruiter off, but kind of fate came along. And during this period, old crusty uh, boatswain's mate left, this new guy came in and I was walking in one day trying to figure out what to do. And I told him what happened. And he was like, well, hey man, if you get a doctor's waiver that says you can equalize, he's like, you can come in the SEAL teams. I was like, well, that's all I wanted to do. And he's like, well, let me help you. And there, there is no better example of the fucking classic Navy than that right there. Oh, yeah. Like, ah, oh, dude, yeah, just get a waiver, man. We'll take you. <laughs> exactly. Fucking my, my quote is not met this month, so I'll tell you whatever the fuck you need to yeah. hear. Uh, to but he was a good it. dude. He helped yeah. me, man. He showed me. He really helped me get where I'm going. And if you're out there, I've said this on so many podcasts. Henry Horn was his name. I still haven't met him or I have not seen him again since I enlisted. Yeah. Uh, but I'd love to thank you in person, brother, because I wouldn't be a SEAL today if it wasn't for you. That's a trip. Henry Horn. Sounds like a porn star a little bit. Uh, you know, he was, a, he was a stocky black guy, good looking guy. He might have been. I mean, with a name like that, I don't know how you couldn't. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, so you joined the Navy. Uh, I'm assuming you had at that point it was the dive fair program or whatever. Um, did, did you have a, a BUDS contract or were you... Yeah, no. no, they didn't. Uh, I don't think the dive fair program existed then yet. Uh, so I enlisted. Uh, I joined in the delayed entry program in 92. So I actually joined crazy. September 11, 92 is the day oh, I signed sure. my paperwork. Uh, so delayed interest is still in high school. So I basically did delayed entry where you're going to the office and all this stuff, getting ready to go. And then as soon as I graduated, I headed to... Um, I had to boot camp, uh, and and basically what they said is, when you get to boot camp, you know at some point some SEAL is going to come out and he's going to say, does anybody want to try out for the SEAL program? And then you know raise your hand, tell them you want to do it, and they'll let you try out. And that's pretty much how it worked. So I didn't go in with any kind of guarantee or pipeline uh, aside from having you know the SEAL raid I needed. And which what was that? I was an IS. Oh so no shit! Intel, yeah. yeah, so did I. Fucking a. Oh no shit! I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Huh. Yep. So, what year did you go through? Uh, Ninety six. Okay. So. But uh, yeah, that's a fucking trip. The uh, that was my my first exposure uh, to that that command or that uh, that base where the command is at, yep. which was which was a hell of an inspiration. Uh, going through a school, getting ready to go to buds. But did you have anybody from the command that came over and worked with you guys? No, no. We I remember seeing some guys that would come to the pool and do like that the O course thing and and would swim, and you could tell they were fucking team guys. You know, they were working out in the gym or whatever. But and even there was a, a handful of times where we saw guys in in their blues or in the, in a uniform with a trident on it that that were clearly from there, but. Uh, but that was it. We had really no interaction with them uh, whatsoever. Did you have somebody? That yeah, we had sure. a guy that would come over because the uh, one of the senior chiefs that worked there uh, at the <clears> Intel <throat> school, her husband was at the command. So he would come over and work out with the that's guys cool. that wanted to go to Bud's. Yeah, yeah. He'd kick our ass. And, yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, All right, so you go through Intelligence Specialist A School, and then you end up uh, at Bud's. Uh, did you make it through the, with the class you started with and all that? Or? I didn't, man. I'm one of the 75% uh, majority that don't make it through the first shot. So, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I went through Hell Week with class 200. So, um, so started in January 95 all the way through Hell Week in March. And then uh, I started developing pretty bad tendonitis in my feet. 
and just tried to push through and got, I don't know, about a week, week and a half into dive, uh, dive phase. We hadn't made it to pool week yet and uh, ended up getting rolled. So got rolled, uh, and then uh, almost before I'm supposed to be done, I go to Tijuana, or I'm sorry, I go to Rosarito, <laughs> Mexico to party and get totally shithoused and uh, walk out of the bar trying to clear my head. And there are these young kids that are doing flips off the boardwalk, which is low tide, probably about six feet from the boardwalk to the sand below. And in my drunken state, I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> so I try to launch this flip off the boardwalk, totally don't land it, land sideways and, and break my wrist. I break both bones in my wrist in Mexico um, and uh, had to go back to Bud's and made up this story because I knew that I'd get kicked out if I told him I was drinking and broke my arm. So I made up this story that I was down in Mexico and I was, you know, rock climbing and I fell off this rock, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, in typical team guy instructor fashion, they're like, sure. Yeah. But they let well, it. You, even then you could go down to Mexico then though, right? Yeah, you could. Yeah. yeah we were still there, allowed. You weren't allowed. To yeah, no, we were cleared hot. So, yeah. and they, but they knew it, man, they knew it. And, uh, and, and they, they allowed me to stay, but the slack was pretty slim. Yeah. So I got the cast off and they had me class back up less, I think it was two and a half weeks after I got the class back, the cast off that I class back up. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. <laughs> Chumba. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And uh, did you make it through with that? I did. Yeah. But it was painful. I oh, failed man. almost every swim after that. I mean, I, dude, it was a gut check. Yeah. Fuck, man. So was that 201 or 203? 202. 202. I double, when I broke my arm, it, it caused me to double roll. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. All right. So you graduate 202, and then uh, where do you go from there, team wise? I went to uh, Team Four, East Coast. And I had worked at Team Four uh, after I graduated or after I finished uh, A school. For whatever reason, Buds was backed up. So they sent me uh, over to Team 4. They sent me to Group 2, and then Group 2 sent me over to Team 4. So it was kind of cool. I got to meet some people, and I worked in the uh, ORE. The, the, um, uh stands for Operational Readiness Exercise. It was basically the certification for you know platoons getting ready to go out the door yeah. for deployment. So I was just a nug working in there. But it was, it was cool to be able to see that. And then uh, 
went to Buds and then ended up coming back to Team Four. When you came back, were there guys that recognized you and you're like, you motherfucker, you made it? Yep. Oh, shit. Yeah, That's absolutely. Because cool. I was a guy that nobody thought, you <laughs> yeah. know, they, they, they thought, oh, yeah. yeah, the skinny little runt, he ain't yeah. going to make it. <laughs> Uh, that's a fucking trip. So, uh, what was what was your experience like in terms of checking in and and you know being a new guy and whatever? I, I always like to hear stories of whether it's hazing or just you know kind of the welcome to the canoe club uh, type of uh, feel that that existed back in those days. Uh, you know, the pre nine eleven when it was still they, they may, I mean not that they don't earn it now, but you know back then it was it was a different level. Checking of, into the command, yeah, yeah, the first time. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, uh, I remember coming back thinking, dude, I did it. I graduated buds and you know, I'm a badass. and yeah, you check in and no, it was still old school back then. And, uh, yeah. um, yeah, I remember like, I think, I think it was the first day they're like, Hey man, go get wet. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, I didn't stutter, go get wet. <laughs> and, uh, went and got wet and then come back and they're like, now go mop the platoon hut down there. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I'll admit, I, probably, I was definitely cocky. I mean, I write a lot about that when I was younger. It got me in trouble a lot. And uh, so there were several guys at that command who were pretty hard pipe hitters who definitely took a disliking and uh, gave me some extra attention. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> what, uh, what was your, your pipeline in terms of from when you checked in until you were in a platoon and, and doing a workup? It wasn't, uh, so I got to the command probably in uh, February. And uh, back then, STT, um, I don't know if it was the same on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, uh, it was run out of group, out of the main group. Yeah, same same on the West Coast. That's SEAL tactical training, which is, and I know we've talked about this before, uh, but just for those of you who haven't heard it, it's kind of the on-the-job training, if you will, uh, to a certain extent. It's like an advanced training bridge between graduating SEAL training and, and jumping into a platoon so that when you get into a platoon, you're a little more ready to uh, to hit the ground running. But, yeah, we, yeah. we uh, it was done by, you know, there was, there was just one, one main group that did it instead of each SEAL team having its own, uh, you know, class that, that way, which is how it used to be before they did that. But I tell people, Bud, Bud's is like high school. STT or SQT is kind of like college before yeah. you, you know, go hit the job. But, uh, yeah, we were totally backed up, uh, for whatever reason, team four, I think really had, a um, had lost a lot of guys for whatever reason they had gotten out, transferred, whatever. So almost our entire, uh, a large portion of our buds class came to team four. Yeah. So there were so many of us, uh, it was really backlogged for STT. So our team said, hey, we're just going to create our own STT. So we actually, you know, oh, there was okay. like 16 of us mm. that went through uh, STT together. And that happened, I don't know, in the summer. So probably four or five months, you did a lot of nug, yeah. you know, Sweep nug the beach, work. Fucking yep. paint, the, paint the parking lot lines. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, paint the cannons in the rain. <laughs> I did that a couple of times. And then, uh, but then went off to, uh, went off to STT and then came back and it was about, I, by the time we finally got our Trident, cause there was a six month probationary period. You had, um, you had the Trident boards you had to go through. So it was almost a year and a half from the time I got to the team to the time I actually got my Trident. Yeah. Wow. I think for me, it was, uh, it was just shy. It was a little less than a year, but, uh, yeah, it's a long fucking time. Um, yeah. Your first platoon, any or if you could just kind of walk through your your platoon life, um, you know, from from early on until kind of more recent uh, recent years. 
Yeah, man, it was good. I mean, we had, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that I'd gone through buds with were in my platoon. So, I mean, you know, we, we had a lot of, we were pretty new guy heavy, to be honest, but, uh, but it was good. And, you know, back then we were area of the world specific. So we were uh, Central and South America. We were jungle warfare focused and, you know, some guys love the cold. Uh, me, I'm a heat guy. I mean, I don't mind the cold, but I like, like, you know, the jungle, hot weather, it's my jam. I don't, yeah. it doesn't phase me. And I really enjoyed learning all about the jungle and jungle warfare and learning to survive and live in the jungle. Um, and, you know, we got to do some cool things. I mean, South America is a, uh, both a, a, a cool place to be. And it was kind of my first introduction, introduction to like, you know, really third world countries like, holy shit, you know, there's some people here that like have nothing. Yeah. And it also was kind of my first introduction that, Hey man, there's some really dangerous place in the world. I mean, we were, we started going to Colombia, and you were seeing, you know, they had the drug war going on and the FARC controlled a lot of Colombia, a lot of Colombia. And, uh, and a lot of the, uh, you know, narco traffickers were working hand in hand with the FARC. So that was a lot of stuff that we were doing. And that was kind of my first introduction to, uh, hey, man, this this job's for real, bro. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that was cool. I mean, we did a we did one of the, the first deployments. I volunteered to go um, do a counter drug type mission and went into central southern Colombia and pretty far controlled territory. And um, and one night uh, we were getting information that this very large 400 man FARC element. It was a it was like a Colombian special forces camp and uh, that this 400 man element was moving towards the camp. So we were getting word about this and like, hey, you need to be ready. And like we had like a no shit E&E &E plan and um, and they were within a day or two of getting to the camp. And I remember one night, like we were, we were sleeping in our camis, everything in your boots and like ready to go. And all of a sudden one night, like the base just exploded, you know, gunfire in all directions, you know, 40 Mike Mike into the tree lines and just going to town on the sixties. And I'm like, Holy shit, people are running in all directions. And, uh, my, uh, the senior chief I was working for is like, Hey, prep those thermites, you know, we're going to destroy the radios, you know, get ready if we have to go on E&E. &E. And, you know, I mean, as a brand new guy, yeah. you know, I mean, it was like uh, pretty crazy, but turned out that uh, that element, for whatever reason, it might've been because of the response of the base. I mean, they went, dude, they, you remember that scene in Predator where they yeah. just go to town and the like this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's pretty much what the jungle looked like around this base. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, that bark, that massive FARC element was like, ah, maybe we don't want to screw yeah. with them. But they went the other way. And, uh, you know, nothing much else yeah. happened after that. Like they kicked over the fucking hornet's nest. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you did that deployment. Uh, you come back. How many, how many um, deployments did you do at Team 4 while you were there? Three, four. Four? So, yeah. So in, in the subsequent platoons, were there any other experiences like that where a um, big gunfight like that or was it? No, that was the only one that I, that was only my only like real world type thing that occurred. Um, it was on that same, that same trip that was the first time I saw somebody shot. Um, and it also kind of my first introduction to- um, Hookers. <laughs> yeah, they, they <laughs> were there. Too. They were there in Colombia too. But, thick, uh, thick ass Colombian My, my, my uh, no to um, corruption, if you will, and the way of the third, you know, way of third world countries. Because uh, what happened is, 
you know, we were in our platoon hut one day or in our little Quonset hut there on that base. And all of a sudden the Colombians come running in and they're like, hey, hey, we need your help. We need your medic. And we're like, okay, let's go. And uh, we go and there's a dude shot like in the head. And uh, we're like, what the hell happened? And this officer was standing there and he's like, oh, yeah, I think somebody might have shot from the from the field or something. And uh, there was no exit wound. So it was obviously a and he he had a sidearm. Yeah. So we honestly think this dude just shot this guy. Yeah. Uh, and we did um, CPR. We actually traked him. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, he didn't survive, but so it was kind of my first time seeing somebody shot and yeah. it's kind of an interesting thing. And also to see like, Hey dude, we don't have other, all the rules that we have yeah. here. You know, like yeah. the Colombians, they don't fuck around. Yeah. A little more nonchalant about, uh, fixing problems. Yeah. Um, all right. So you do four, four platoons at, at team four. Did you know Dave Scott, uh, when he was there that ring a bell? I knew Andy Scott, Dave Scott. No. He was a team for uh, around that same time, maybe just before then, but uh, but I, I think probably around the same time. Anyway, okay. Um, <clears throat> he was he was a good friend of mine that died uh, base jumping in Guam back in two thousand two, early or uh, yeah, two, like October of no, two thousand two. No, I don't remember that. So, but uh, huh. yeah, he he spent a number of years at Team Four. But uh, anyway, um, so after Team Four, uh, walk us through kind of the the post Team Four, and then and then the next chapter. Yeah, man, I did. Uh, so after several deployments, um, got selected to go to training. That was kind of the, the pipeline and went to training and was teaching communications and reconnaissance marksmanship. And uh, it was about that time. I was kind of at the decision point of my career. Um, you know, I was thinking about screening and I had several people say, well, you know, have you thought about putting in a commissioning package? Um, so I, I, nothing was happening. You know, we were pre 9-11, you know, there was a lot of training, but really not much real world operation. It was about that time. I also met my wife. So I was kind of like, eh, where do I go? Not a lot going on in the world. You know, maybe I should go down, go down this path. So I put in um, a package for Seaman to Admiral, uh, got uh, turned down the first year and then submitted again the next year and got picked up. So, uh, so yeah, finished my time in training, got selected for Seaman Admiral in 2000, uh, wrapped up my time at Team 4 and checked into Old Dominion University ROTC in like July of 2001 or June of 2001. And of course, you know, everybody knows what happened September 11th. So How, how uh, difficult was that being in college and especially being in the, in the first year? knowing that you've got you've got to sit there and go through fucking school for four years well well three and and i tried to drop out of the program i went back to the team um probably i don't know only a few days after 9 11 because i knew i mean i was like dude we're going to war i mean this this is all an act of war and obviously you were hearing everything that was coming out of the news so yeah i went back to uh my old command and uh my co and was like hey i want out of this program um, and he was like, well, prophetically, he goes, Jay, this is a war that's not going to be over tomorrow. He's yeah. like, this is a war that's going to go on for decades. Yeah. He's like, I guarantee you, you will get your shot. He's like, go back to school, finish, you know, learn how to be, you know, a good leader and come back and be that leader. And, and he was right. I mean, 
So got off track a little along the way, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, and it was hard, man. I won't lie. I mean, you know, sitting there in school while I'm watching this happen and we started losing guys, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think Matt Bourgeois was one of the first guys we lost and, and just seeing these guys, um, you know, Dave Tapper, some of these other guys that started getting killed and realizing it was real and realizing that a lot of friends of mine were now starting to deploy and do everything that we trained to do. Um, so I was excited to get back and I just kind of poured myself into trying to do well in school and get done and learn. And yeah. What, uh, what was that like going back? Uh, so once you got your commission, then, uh, where did you go from there? So I went, uh, so originally I was going to get orders out to the West coast and that's typically what they do when a enlisted guy who was an East coast guy, they typically like to switch and it makes sense. And I'll tell you what, if any of you out there, I do recommend it. Uh, I think you need that disassociation because uh, at the last minute they switched us just because they needed uh, guys on the East Coast. And I got I got sent to Team 10, which was great. And I love Team 10. But the problem was I had friends at that team. And and this is where my my career got a little off track. Um, you know, I think I'd been really fortunate at this point in my life to have been pretty successful in my career. Um, you know, I'd excelled, I'd always been ranked high, you know, getting picked up for the commissioning program. I, I crushed, uh, I crushed it at the ROTC unit, ended up, you know, being selected to be the battalion commander for the largest ROTC consortium on the East coast, graduated number one out of that program. And I think I came back, not even, I think I know I came back as a new officer thinking like I was God's gift to leadership. Like, you know, Hey man, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go to war. I'm I'm here to lead. Yeah. I'm going to be patting, you know, follow me. Yeah. And, um, and there were a lot of things that had changed. You know, I thought, Hey man, I'm the experienced, you know, Mustang. I, I know, you know, I've been, you know, I've done multiple deployments, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, been a training instructor, you know, and the problem was, yeah, the world had changed drastically. Um, you know, you, you saw that transition, the pre 9-11 military versus the post 9-11 military. And I try to explain to a lot of people, I mean, the military is, the longer the military is away from sustained combat, you're operating and training based off those last periods of sustained combat. So for us, we were still operating off a lot of the Vietnam era tactics, you know? Yeah, and, well, especially jungle shit. Yeah. yeah. So then we get over to Iraq and Afghanistan, we realize, holy shit, this stuff doesn't work. Like, and so there was this drastic rewrite of all the tactics in those first few years, you know, implementing mobility and all these other things. So I came back as this new officer thinking I was like God's gift and, um, and, and arrogant and started screwing up. You know, I didn't know a lot of the stuff we were doing. Um, you but know, you pretended to know. I pretended to know <laughs> and screwed it up yeah. on top of pretending to and know. And then blamed other people. It was yeah, great. Probably. So, but I was, but I wasn't, I wasn't humble enough to reach out to some of these, you know, I let my ego get in the way. These young, these guys that were younger than me that in my mind, I'm like, man, I should be better. You know, you're a new guy and I'm not, you know, but instead of humbling myself and being like, Hey bro, can you help me? Like I'm struggling here. So I just kind of hung on too tight and was just stepping on my dick right and left. And, you know, as typical, typically happens when you start screwing up, you know, uh, started self-medicating. Uh, and, uh, so then, you know, on top of screwing up as a young leader and making mistakes, then I was starting to get a name as a drunk. Yeah. So all those things came together to really kind of damage my credibility, which culminated, and it didn't help. There was an additional dynamic, me 
And my uh, senior chief or chief, and he became a senior chief, we did not get along at all. We butted heads. Um, he, he had kind of an abrasive style of leadership. He was, a, don't get me wrong, he was a good leader. He loved the guys. He very hard though abrasive style. And he and I just butted heads. I mean, I think he, he wanted an ensign that kept his mouth shut and never said anything. And that definitely was not me. Although I wasn't doing a very good job of leading by example. So that created another bad dynamic in all of this. And all of it culminated with a bad call on a mission in Afghanistan that thankfully nobody got killed, nobody was injured, uh, but it definitely damaged my professional reputation. It was kind of the nail in the coffin for all these things. And uh, both that senior chief and multiple other people were like, get rid of that guy. He's dangerous. He's going to get somebody killed. What was the uh, the call, if you can... Uh... So we were doing a uh, we were doing a uh, uh, kind of a cordon sweep through a valley, and we locked down the valley. Uh, the valley ran north to south, and then T kind of a T intersection east to west. Pretty deep valley, like you know the ridge lines were probably a good thousand feet above the valley floor. Can you say where it was or no? Uh, southern Afghanistan, down in the Helmand yeah. area. So uh, so yeah, we were um, sweeping through that area. I had an overwatch on the, uh, Eastern side of the Valley with sniper team and a rocket team. <clears throat> and, uh, we got into some contacts right at the very beginning of the day, inserted very early in the morning. Um, those contacts kind of scurried away into the caves and everything else down there. And then it was quiet the majority of the day towards the end of the day, they got into a gunfight and, uh, uh, because we had already started to fall back uh, for the extract uh, to the south. And I had already sent our snipers back. So it was just me and a machine gunner that were kind of waiting. But we were the only people that had, con when this gunfight erupted, and we were the only guys that had comms with the individuals down in the valley. So I'm relaying. And, uh, and they called for reinforcements. And I was like, huh, you know, they need reinforcements. I got a machine gunner. I was like, I'm going which was a bad call. Uh, and the reality is, uh, and I tell people this cause a lot of people that don't understand tactics are like, well, Hey man, your guys needed you and you like went and, but I, I didn't really think through that call. And really that call was driven by, I want to get in the fight, yeah. which is super dangerous. Uh, if that's your driving reason. So, uh, yeah, I took this machine gunner and I and dropped off into the Valley. And, and this is where I talk about that negative relationship with my senior chief, because he was coordinating, you know, a lot of the assets. And I said, Hey, I'm going down to relieve the, or I'm going down to support these guys. And he was like, fuck no. And because we had so much, uh, dislike for each other, I let my personal feelings get in the way of professional decision-making. And I was like, screw you. Yeah. And just went. So what happened, we went down into this Valley and it, they wanted, they were getting ready to call in, uh, air sport. But because we now had, once we went into the valley, they lost comms with us. So they had no comms, didn't know where we were. So of course they couldn't release air support because of that. Uh, finally, we got to the bottom of the valley. And I mean, it, you know, for those that don't understand, it's a super bad call. I mean, multiple maneuvering elements, uh, unknown enemy force. I mean, there could have been enemy hidden in fighting positions that we wouldn't have known about that could have popped out and killed us. Yeah. And now it would have created this much greater dynamic problem. <clears throat> I would have contributed to this machine gunner being killed and myself or potentially delaying firepower to save these guys in this engagement that, you know, was a good click and a half away from where we were. So anyways, long story short, come back up on the radio, 
ground force commanders, breathe and fire, get your ass out of the valley, climbed out of the valley. They finally managed to bring in that air support. And thankfully nobody was injured. Nobody was killed because of that. But yeah, that was definitely the nail in my car. And here's the other reason, the last thing, the last part of that, instead of just, uh, owning it and saying, man, I made a bad call. Like I fought against it. Like yeah. they were like, that was a bad call. And I was like, screw you. I, you know, I did the right thing. I, I ran to the sound of the guns. I went to support our guys and, you know, like they were trying to be, you know, my XO, which this was a pretty emotional deployment because, um, this was the Red Wings deployment. I was part of that troop. So Eric Christensen had been our troop commander and had been killed. So our XO stepped in to fill Eric's shoes. So already there's a pretty, a lot of stress and, and emotions on this deployment. So he's like telling me it's a bad call. I'm pushing back. And finally, I think they were like, you know, screw off. We're sending you back to Bagram. So if there's two uh, diversions or diverts I want to uh, go down, one is a leadership one, which we'll tackle second. The first one, were, so were you in Afghanistan when Red Wings took place? No, we were in Germany. We were getting ready to rip. Okay. So literally, um, like literally, we were packing out and we were leaving within days when, you know, Red Wings happened. I gotcha. Um, going back to the call for a second, um, you know, one thing that, and here, here's my parallel to dog training for those of you that every time I, I fail to uh, make at least one dog training reference, uh, you call me out in the comments on YouTube. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one thing that, that is just... Um, just in, incredibly important in dog training is being able to to remove your emotion from your decision making process, especially when it comes to training and using nonverbal communication and body language and things like that. And you're trying to get the dog to, to do something, and you're using these nonverbal calm skill sets to to try to to communicate that to the dog, and they don't understand. You get pissed at the dog when ultimately it, it's your fault. But I'm I'm curious. <clears throat> You know, in, in fast forward now, you, you know, you, you kind of thrive. And, and uh, one of the one of the principled things that you do professionally is, is teaching leadership and speaking and things of that nature. Is there a, a mechanism or a tactic that you uh, that you learned from that experience uh, and you pass on to folks nowadays that, that you run seminars with and things like that, that uh, that kind of gives them a tool or tools to remove emotion from decision-making pro processes as it relates to leadership that, that you learned from that experience? Yeah, no, there's plenty. Um, and I think that makes me, you know, a lot of people may want to look at it from the reverse side of the spectrum and say, well, who are you to teach leadership? You screwed up. Well, I think I'm probably better than most people out there because I did screw up and I learned from it. Uh, I learned a lot and it was a really hard road to come back from. Uh, so there are a lot of things. I mean, one of the things that I teach, is, yeah, obviously understanding this process of, you know, the mission, the man, and you place yourself last. So that's how the equation should work. So is it justified for what you're doing in the mission? The mission should take the most priority, obviously, because that's what we're there to do. Then, you know, how does it impact the men? Is it necessary to put them at risk in order to accomplish the mission? I mean, sometimes that's part of our job. And then last, you know, how do you play into that equation? In my opinion, that really shouldn't come into play. And yeah. mine was totally backwards in that decision-making process. The, the second thing I teach, three rules of leadership now. 
And, and rule number one is, is lead yourself. And this was something that I also was really failing at. And it was, how do you build structure, discipline, manage yourself, your emotions, that everything is, is built around setting the example through your actions um, before you ever get to the, the, the leadership where you're interacting and trying to influence other people to do something. So if you're not rock solid in rule number one, um, then you're never going to be successful long-term in rule number two, because too many people, I did, I made this mistake where I literally thought the rank on my collar and, you know, the words coming out of my mouth meant something. I mean, especially in, you know, the deal in special operations, yeah. man, long before you ever open your mouth, you know, people have decided what kind of leader you are. Yeah. Um, so, and then rule number, and, and so that's rule number two is how you lead others. How do you influence them? And it should all be about, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, what Jocko talks about extreme ownership, you know, your ability to lead others. If things are not going well, um, most people in leadership immediately look for something else to blame. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the person, it's this, it's that, instead of coming back to themselves and saying, well, hey, did I do everything? Did I, A, did I lead myself well? B, did I provide them all the resources they need, the training, the guidance, the assets, you know, everything they need and the motivation, whatever it is to get it done. And then the last component is you got to lead always. You can't pick and choose. And that was the other mistake that I was making, um, you know, that I was, you know, hey, I'm a leader when I'm in this leadership position. But when I'm not, you know, I was drinking in a shit show, which yeah. was damaging my credibility as a leader. Yeah. Uh, and once you're a leader, I don't care if you're a parent. I don't care if you're in the civilian world. I don't care if you're in the military law enforcement. Dude, once you are established as any of those things, well, as a, as a leader, if you will, it doesn't matter if you're on duty or off duty. You're a parent 100% yeah. of the time. So if you're telling your kids to do something, but, yet, but you're doing something else, they're going to follow your example. Yeah. Um, so, and that's the interesting thing. Leadership's the same no matter what you do, whether it's in special operations or parenting. So you got to lead always. You got to make the right call all the time. I mean, you might make some mistakes, but. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's really, uh, you know, brilliantly simple and, uh, and very well put. I think it, uh, that's an awesome trifecta that, uh, that you pulled out of that. Uh, all right, so you get shit canned back to Bagram, basically. Uh, and what happened after that? So um, it was a few days later, the guys came back and the CO basically said, hey, I'm going to wait till everybody gets back. So and then we're going to have a meeting. So along, I got to tell you, I mean, for people to understand, I mean, to be sent back from the combat zone is about the greatest disgrace, in my opinion, you can take. Um, and I was at rock bottom. I mean, that is probably the hardest thing. And I was hearing rumors that that uh, that there were several people that are pushing for me to go to a Trident Review Board. And for anybody out there to understand that, uh, a Trident Review Board is basically where a SEAL has to go before a, a board of individuals, usually enlisted and officers, and they basically decide, do, do, does he have the ability to still be a SEAL? And if they vote against that, they take his Trident and they send him out to the fleet. Um, so I'm hearing this and, and still a lot in denial. I won't lie. I kept telling myself, Hey man, you did the right thing. This is bullshit. You're being thrown under the bus. Um, but I, um, you know, went to that, uh, first meeting and it went back and forth and definitely all the mistakes that I had made up to that point were laid out on the table. You know, the, the training mistakes and hanging on too tight and then 
a lot of the drinking incidents, all these different things were brought up, you know, culminating with this bad call on this mission. And uh, yeah, man, it was uh, brutal. I felt like I was getting shot up. And the CO and the master chief kind of listened to everything and they said, okay, you know, go back to your room. We'll meet back tomorrow morning at eight o'clock and uh, we'll tell you what we decide. So um, I went back to my room and uh, it's the only time in my life that I actually thought about killing myself. I uh, pulled my um, cig out and put it in my mouth. And I just, cause I, I didn't think that uh, one, I didn't think that they were going to decide in my favor. And two, um, I didn't think I could fix it. Um, so anyways, I mean, fate plays kind of interesting ways. Um, my chair in my room in Bagram, uh, my bed was kind of, it was a little small room and my bed's off to the left and my chair was up against the wall with my gear tree where my pistol was hanging, but directly across was my desk and there was a picture of my wife and kids. And so here I am, this asshole with a gun in his mouth and I'm looking at my wife and kids and I'm like, what a fucking dumbass. So I put it away and I went and uh, uh, saw the base chaplain, the Jesota chaplain, and talked to him and just said, dude, you know, this is what's happening. <laughs> and uh, he was kind of funny because he's like, he listened for a while and then he goes, all right, so let me get this straight. He's like, so you got yourself in trouble. He's like, and he's like, you don't know what's going to happen yet. He's like, but you were going to kill yourself, but they haven't told you what's going to happen till eight o'clock tomorrow morning. He's like, don't you think that's rushing things? <laughs> can't, like, you, can't you wait until they yeah. tell you to fuck off first? So I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. So, uh, so yeah, eight o'clock the next morning, I go back and uh, the CEO thankfully uh, said, hey, you know, you fucked up. But he said, I've seen you do a lot of good things. I believe in you. Uh, so we're going to give you a second chance. Uh, but it doesn't come without accountability and it's going to be a, a hard road for you. And he said, you know, the awards that you were going to get from this combat deployment are gone. We're taking all of them. Um, you will receive an unofficial letter of reprimand, which in an officer's career, if you get a letter of reprimand, it ends your career. So what they did is they wrote an unofficial that they, the CO said, and I'm going to put it in my safe. I'm going to turn it over to the new CO. He said, you're going to do another tour as an assistant platoon commander. He said, if you screw that up, this official letter, this unofficial letter becomes official and it will end your career. And he said, and the last thing is you're going to, to ranger school. <laughs> so, and they said, dismissed. <laughs> oh, shit. And I'll be honest, I was bitter. Yeah. I was still angry. Um, did you still deflect and say it's it's them, it's not me? I did. Yeah. Not, not to them. Obviously, I was right, but, at least smart enough in this situation to not storm out of there and be an idiot. Although, but, but internally, it was still their, their bad. Absolutely, that I'm being thrown under the bus. At what point did that transition into accountability on your end? Ranger school. No shit. Yeah. And there was a key moment that happened in Ranger school that, that well, yeah, it was a key moment. I quit Ranger school. Really? Yeah. Uh, true story. I quit Ranger school for about a 12-hour period. So bitter, bitter, bitter. Uh, all I did over the holidays after we got back from that deployment was drink and sulk. That's the reality. I was an asshole to my family. Um, I was just bitter. Did, did uh, any of your platoon mates have your back? Uh, they were all fuck you 
No shit. I That's got pretty. Fucking I got pretty ostracized, uh, and you know what? Some of it I feel like I did to myself. I mean, because I was pushing everybody away because I was one. I was ashamed. Like, man, I really screwed up, and God, my professional reputation's been called on the line. And 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 in this meeting, I kind of saw, hey, man, you know, nobody believes you're a leader. You're you're a shitbag. Uh, so that hurt on top of everything else. Um, but I still was trying to justify in my mind that I had done the right thing. Uh, but no, man, I was, you know, guys were calling me Rambo red, um, <laughs> which is not a compliment guys. Uh, you know, I actually had somebody, uh, write on, you know, we had our checkout board, somebody wrote on the board, you know, Hey, why don't you go ahead and kill yourself? Uh, you know, team guys, dude, yeah. they're, you know, brutal, brutally honest, bro. Yeah. So, um, so no, I really did not. Uh, which definitely just kind of added insult to injury. So, um, anyways, got home, checked, went to Ranger School, and was only home for a couple of months. I mean, they were like, "Hey, you know, you're gonna get home, you're gonna get settled, and you're going to Ranger School." So I went to the Ranger School the very beginning of February, and uh, got to Ranger School. Bitter chip on my shoulder. Uh, went through the first part and just angry like i didn't talk to any of these guys and also once again arrogance played a part i was like hey man i'm a team guy i'm in good shape i'm gonna crush this school and dude ranger school is hard yeah. you know make no joke about it i mean it is not as hard as buds but dude it's a kick in the balls and um and because i was angry and bitter and didn't have the right mindset and it was hard um on the third or fourth day of training you had the land nav course and uh and i used to teach land nav so uh, they, they started us about 3 a.m. in the morning. It's February in uh, Fort Benning. And for those that don't know, Fort Benning, Georgia, I believe the air is piped straight in from Alaska <laughs> in the winter. I mean, dude, it, it, it was so cold that morning that my camelback hose froze. Oh, shit. Yeah. And they wouldn't, uh, you know, so I'm used to the teams where, you know, hey, if it's cold, dude, put some shit on. Yeah. And no, not there, man. It was like, take all your warmies off, get out and do this course. So all of that kind of culminated with me being pissed off. And I'm just like, well, you know what? I'm so good. I'm going to wait till the sun rises and then I'll just crush this course and be done with it. Dumbass. Uh, because it's actually a, a long, hard course and I didn't finish. Um, I ran out of time and failed. So got back, went to check in and the ranger instructors already had, dude, you know, I was the lone Navy guy in the ranger school and, you know, you, there's a lot of animosity between yeah. SEALs and rangers and they started giving me all kinds of shit. Uh, about failing the course and all that pent up anger and frustration and denial and everything else just bubbled up. And I was like, fuck you guys. And they were like, are you quitting? And I was like, yeah, I'm done. So they were like, Roger that, you know, go back to the barracks. You're going to have to meet with the uh, Ranger Colonel and, uh, and uh, slept a fit fitful night. I barely slept and I was so ashamed, dude. I've never quit anything in my life. Like I just, I felt like it was a train wreck that wouldn't stop. You know, like every time I'd feel like, you know, the cars had settled, you know, like another train would come <laughs> along and smash into the back. And, uh, so the next morning I had to go see the Ranger Colonel, uh, a guy by the name of KK Chin was the Colonel who I've connected with earlier this year. He retired, uh, Lieutenant General, uh, just awesome guy, much respect for him. And 
met with him and he basically, you know, what happened? And I gave him the sob story that I was this victim, this bullshit story. And I, thankfully, he kind of saw right through that. And he was like, you know, I got a really good friend. And this is where fate is amazing. I got a really good friend. He's a SEAL, you know, pretty respected. You know, why don't I call him? And literally, like, he's dialing. And I'm kind of like, dude, I don't want to talk to any SEAL. I don't want to admit to a SEAL I quit. And uh, dials him up. And it's uh, Vince Peterson in the book. I changed his name. But uh, Vince was my CO at four, who when I went back and who mentored me, who encouraged me to get a commission, that's who he happens to know. And he happened to be on the other end of that phone. And he hands it to me and I basically try and give Vince his same sob story. And, and he's, you know, I mean, he was such a good leader. He kind of listened. And then he's like, yeah, he was like, do you honestly think that Ranger School is punishment? And I was like, yes. And he's like, you know, you don't actually, he's like, you don't think you can learn something from it, that you can get better from it? And I was like, I don't know. And and then this is where, as humans, when we screw up, we tend to think that there's no way to undo it, especially if it's a major mistake in, in this case where I'd just been piling on. And I really just thought I'd dug myself a hole that there was no way I could get out of. Like between um, the leadership mistakes in Afghanistan, the credibility, you know, uh, damage and then quitting Ranger School. I was like, there's no way I can ever go back to the teams. Nobody's ever going to take me back. And, uh, and he was like, listen, he's like, here's a deal. He said, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. You know, people's memories are pretty short. And if you're setting the example, they're going to follow you after a while. I mean, it just is the nature of the beast. I mean, if you are around somebody that might have had a bad reputation, over time, you're going to realize, dude, this person like sets the example. Like I want to do what they're doing because that's what setting the example is. So he's like, go back to that course, crush it and come back and give these, you know, give these guys a reason to follow you. And I was like, holy shit. It kind of changed my mindset. And, uh, and I asked the Colonel, I'm like, Hey man, can I, uh, I was like, can I get back in my class? And he's like, no, <laughs> he's like, but I'll roll you back an entire class and you'll go sit in ranger school jail for a month. And, uh, and then you'll roll into a new class. So for a month, I walked around Fort Benning, uh, picking up trash and it fucking was police call. Yep. And it was during that, that month, dude, that I really kind of came to grips with the only person, uh, at fault was me yeah. and poor leadership decisions and, so it was a real wake up call for me and epiphany and just kind of interesting the way it unfolded. Um, but I needed it. Yeah. I needed it to, to become a better leader. And I mean, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I definitely learned and moved forward from there. And it was a hard road, man. You talk about coming back and earn it. It took, I mean, to this day, there are team guys that hate my guts and there's nothing wrong with that. Cause they, I mean, I'm sure they're just like, yeah, I remember that guy. He was that guy that fucked up in Afghanistan, but the guys that I work with, I earned back their trust. Yeah. Uh, so when you went back through ranger school, um, did I mean, looking back on it, do you feel like you went back and, and really crushed it? Or Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I crushed it. As a matter of fact, my goal was to be honor man. And I would have been honor man, uh, but uh, uh, rollbacks can't be honor man. I didn't know that. Oh, no shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, how much weight did you lose? Do you remember? I didn't. I lost maybe 20 pounds. Not as bad as some guys. I mean, some guys lost like 50 pounds. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. So I didn't lose uh, too bad, but it, I, I don't know. I think I didn't have a lot of weight to lose. Yeah. I was already pretty weak. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind comparatively between Buds and Ranger School where you would say, 
this part of ranger school is for sure harder or that just kind of sticks out as being like holy fuck yeah absolutely the, the the difference between buds and ranger school buds is physically harder in the moment like there's a lot of evolutions in buds that are just brutally hard i mean you know being wet and cold and sandy and then having to do things is hard uh and a lot of the reindeer games i think were more intensive at buds ranger school uh, but buds here's the difference buds uh aside from hell week and a few times uh in third phase and then the island you get breaks at night you get to get away from the instructors if you want to go out into town and blow off some steam you could do that you have like pressure relief times whereas ranger school that does not happen you have black hat ranger instructors breathing down your throat and you know yelling at you 24 7 and that gets old real fast uh i remember in the first couple of weeks like dude i got six more weeks of this yeah so. Well, the, the food is a big difference too right like the one thing in buds is that they they fucking feed the shit out of you which you know with the amount of cold that you're going through for that amount of time i mean they have to you know or, or yeah. fucking kill people a lot you know i think but uh to me that that was the thing sticking out one of my best friends growing up went went through ranger school and then ultimately ended up at, uh, at delta but um you know i remember you know we went through it at a kind of a similar time um you know, and him telling me that, you know, kind of here, here's how it went. I was like, dude, I, it would have fucking killed me not, not being able to eat that much, you know, because back yeah. then it was like, I mean, I fuck, dude, I would come home from, uh, like you said, you know, at night when you have that, that little bit of fucking reprieve from, uh, you know, from the stress of training. And, and I mean, I'd eat like after dinner, after we go to, to dinner as a class, I would stop. There was that little McDonald's next to the fucking barracks in the, in the country store or whatever the fuck, yeah. like the surf mart, whatever the fuck it was called. And, uh, I mean, I would eat every night. I would get a double double quarter pounder meal. Uh, this is after dinner, and then I would eat a, a box, an entire box of either Swiss cake rolls or oatmeal cream pies. And there's fucking ten of them in a box, and a sixty four ounce sugared Gatorade every fucking night after dinner. You know, and still it was like I lost weight in buds. You know, but anyway, did 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 that have a role? I know you said you didn't have a lot of weight to lose, but did it still? negatively impact you being being hungry or feeling hungry did you feel hungry yeah no you definitely felt hungry um ranger school does it's a great school i will tell you it is a good leadership school but i do think buds it set me up for success for the discomfort yeah. because that's all it is it's just you're uncomfortable you um lack of sleep so you get very little sleep um, you know, you're sleeping outside frequently, you're, you know, you're sleeping in, you're digging a hole and sleeping in a fighting position. Um, you know, there's the lack of food, you know, depending on, you know, I went through in the winter so often we were cold and, you know, in Florida phase, you know, you're wet and cold, which, you know, we'd been through all that. Yeah. So it was just being uncomfortable, but still having to perform and function and, and lead. And you, Ranger School is kind of interesting because what they do is um, everybody rotates through leadership. It's a leadership school and everybody rotates through leadership positions. So one night, you know, hey, Mike, you're the patrol leader. Uh, so you have to function as the I patrol quit. leader. And, <laughs> yeah, run the whole thing. So I don't know. It sucked. Um, not eating sucked but i don't remember it like it just killed me I mean, there were definitely dudes i mean they got rolled because they you know they, they called it um uh fuck it. before sarah discovered chumbacasino.com she enjoyed chamomile tea come on big jackpot and being in pjs by six let's go the new fun sarah Woohoo! often thinks about the old boring 
Young Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Yeah, they would get caught with food. They would steal yeah. stuff out of the MRE and try. Oh, grazing. That's what they call it. <laughs> grazing. If you were found with food on you, aside from the periods when you were allowed to eat. Yeah, that's some funny shit. So, All right, so uh, you kick ass. Oh, oh, you know what? I'll tell you the one thing. The one thing that I hated in ranger school more than anything else was ruck humping. Yeah. And I was a communicator, dude. Like, I can carry a ruck for days, but it's the way the Army does it. You know, hats off to all you fucking infantry fuckers, man. Because <laughs> you guys can put a ruck on, and you you just, there's a certain way that, that Army guys learn to ruck, the way they lean into it, and they, like, get their hips into it, and just, they can move. And, dude, I didn't have that... Um, that swag. I didn't have that swag. So, dude, we would do these long ruck marches all the time. And, like, I would end up having to run, like, half the time just yeah. to catch up. That's a trip, man. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, you uh, you kick ass at that. You come back to the team with kind of a newfound uh, humility. What what was that like coming back and, and, you know, furthering that uphill battle? What all did you have to do? Or did you get right into a platoon and get, get kind of that second crack at it? Yeah, I got right into a platoon. So I was already slotted. As a matter of fact, the uh, troop had already started. Um, yeah, because I added, you know, a month, a month to my yeah. pipeline. Uh, was there um, some resistance in, in that new platoon? Were there some guys that, yeah. like, I heard of you, motherfucker, and, and that just that culture, you know, that feeling yeah. of, oh, absolutely. You tell they don't fucking like you. Yeah, you'd wa- I'd walk in the room and everybody stopped talking. <laughs> so, no, I that's, had all that's that. was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what, man, I, the thing was, I came back and I realized, you know, dude, this is the way it's going to be. You fucked up. Yeah. yeah. You, it's now on you to show them that you have the ability to do this. And, and, you know, you seriously fucked up. I mean, this is a job. I mean, when I left Afghanistan at team 10, uh, the guys were able to select what platoon and who they wanted to work for. And like, I was, I wasn't even on the list. So that's kind of, I kind of realized the reality of the situation, but I got to give a real shout out to my boss uh, who's still active duty. So I won't give his name, but he was a prior enlisted guy and a phenomenal leader. And when I came into that platoon on day one, he like sat me down. He was like, Hey bro. He's like, I heard what happened in Afghanistan. He's like, I don't care. He's like, all I care about is how you lead from this point forward. And he's like, I'm going to give you opportunities to lead. I'm going to challenge you. And he said, and sometimes I'm going to just need you to follow. And he's like, I want you to follow my lead. He's like, but I'm going to help you get back. And he did, man. He was so great. He was such a good mentor. He was a good leader. And he would look for, I I think he knew that, A, my confidence was shaken. I won't lie. I mean, you know, it's tough to come back into this situation after you screwed up and be like, ah, you know. Um and he also knew he, he needed to build confidence in the guys to believe in me. Yeah. So he would frequently give me pretty complex training scenarios that really it should have been his job. And this is a tribute to him and his confidence and in, in, in security in himself as a leader, because those would have been opportunities that other more junior 
immature platoon commanders would be like, I have to do this so I can prove that I'm like this great leader because it's this really complicated training scenario. But frequently that would happen and he'd be like, hey, Red, you're in charge. And he'd step off and watch it with the uh, training cadre. And I'd be navigating these really complicated, you know, training scenarios. And that, A, it built my confidence and B, it started to win the guys over. They were like, oh, you know, this guy does know what he's doing. He's making good decisions. Yeah. Um, how, how long would you say it, it, it was before, you know, from the time you jumped back into that group until you felt like, you know, you're at least on a, on a level playing field and, and the guys are, are kind of starting to accept you to where it's at least somewhat of a com- comfortable feeling if there ever was one? Um, towards the end of the workup, I mean, there were definitely dudes that I warmed up to and we were becoming friends and hanging out with them and stuff like that. So I definitely, you know, there was still a group that I felt like they didn't like me and, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, and this kind of a thing for life, you know, you're always going to have people that don't like you, you know, fuck them. Yeah. So I was just kind of like, Hey man, it is what it is. Uh, but really the defining moment occurred in Iraq, um, about two months into the deployment, we got into a huge gunfight. Uh, on a pretty complicated target and had um, we had guys that got fragged uh, our interpreter got wounded pretty badly and we also had 11 women and children uh, on the in the middle of all this craziness uh, so navigating all that and and you know helping to coordinate that getting us moved getting our wounded moved getting these women and children moved with us um, to another building under fire uh, and then calling in an airstrike uh, or, a, or a gunship mission on this other house 60 yards away. Um, when we came back from that, you know, the guys were like, Red, Fucking did, Red did a good job. That's cool. And, uh, and, and actually the XO who I had, who had kind of called me out for screwing up right at the very beginning of the workout, you know, so he and I didn't, you know, uh, I don't, I didn't feel like he liked me a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, he actually called, he was the, uh, sort of, uh, commander and called me in. He said, Hey man, I heard you did a great job tonight. Wow. So that was kind of like that, that kind of cemented my confidence. Uh, and I felt like, okay, man, Re- reset button is officially hit. Yeah. Yeah. That's fucking cool. All right. So, you know, things are going fairly well from that standpoint. Walk us through, um, you know, ultimately what, what led to, uh, you know, you being injured? Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was super eventful deployment. Um, I mean, we got into, uh, quite a few firefights and, uh, you know, really went after it. So everything was really good. I was getting my career. I felt like I had gotten my career back on track. Before you, uh, talk about that one, were, were there any in between there that, that really stand out as being like, holy shit, fucking missions or, or operations? Um, no, by far, I think the biggest gunfight we got into was at night. I mean, there were, there were quite a few after that, aside from the night I was wounded, but none of them were at that level. That, that night was crazy because we were taking down three buildings simultaneously and started taking gunfire from multiple positions. Uh, we had guys barricaded up on the rooftop in our building that were dropping grenades down on us. So that was probably the most complicated one we dealt with. Yeah. So, and after that, I mean, I do remember after that, I think the most impactful one for my mind that ended up being a dry hole was a, um, a dust one operation. Um, you know, so for those that don't know, it's, it's uh, duty status whereabouts unknown. So it was for a missing Marine and army kid that had been captured 
and we launched on that mission. Um, and, you know, I mean, in my opinion, I think that's kind of the highest level of special operations to be able to go try and save, you know, whether it's American service members or it's American citizens. So how did that fucking pan out? Dry hole. Did yeah. they ever find them? No, they no. found their bodies. Yeah, they you know were, about they were how killed. long after? Uh, I don't. I you know I I can't remember if it was on the deployment or maybe right after the deployment, but I remember somebody telling me that they had you know found the bodies. Yeah, so I'm sure they were in good shape too, right? Yeah, God, it's fucking horrible shit that happens. Um, yeah, you know, not to get off track or too far in the weeds, but uh, to me, like I, I'm trying to think of a worse fate, and I and I don't, I can't think of one. No, you know? like honestly, um, but all right, so. Uh, now moving forward into uh, the end of that deployment slash uh, ultimately the the most fateful day of, of your military career injury wise, can you uh, walk us through that that program or that that uh, time frame? Yeah, got everything back on track, and we were right at the very end of the deployment. I was uh, screening to go to you know our tier one unit, and that's really what I wanted to do. Um, I also had been. Um, Actually, that night I was supposed to run as the ground force commander for the first time. Uh, they were, you know, kind of grooming me for that next position. And of course, we got word that um, that the number one leader for Al Qaeda was going to be in a specific location—a guy we'd been trying to get all deployment. Who, who was it at that point? Was it Zarqawi? No, no, this was for Ambar, okay. just for Ambar. I'm sorry, the number one leader for Ambar. I got you. I should have said that. Um, so. Um, so we were getting ready, uh, and that mission, it got delayed, it got delayed, it got delayed. And then finally, like 1am we got approval. So, um, so launched on that mission, we took down the target and, uh, and I was, uh, on the initial assault and nothing happened. Like we went in and just kind of a big letdown, um, because we really expected pretty heavy resistance. We were pretty, we were pretty, um, we believed he was going to be there. So saw a lot of activity that we had recently missed him and then started searching the compound and started finding explosives and IED making equipment kind of buried in some of the outer house and the walls and stuff like that. So it's like 3 a.m. now, the uh, uh, external security team's going to, the EOD guy's going to blow all that up. And we are like, all right, you know, we're going to call it a night. It's going to be a quiet night. And um, <clears throat> snipers were like, hey, man, you got a whole bunch of activity on another house about 150 yards away. You know, we just watched like five guys run out, run across the street into some vegetation. So ground force commander, he, my boss came up and said, hey, man, why don't you take your team and let's, uh, we've seen this before, you know, let's go wrap these dudes up and see what they know. So took my team, maneuvered, and was basically was walking into some pretty heavy vegetation. At this point, you know, we had a gunship up overhead, and I'm like, hey, man, do you see any weapons? Do you see anything? Nope. Just laying there not doing anything. I'm like, all right, roger that. So we um, were pushing through this vegetation, and at some point they're like, hey, man, uh, you guys need to turn. You're going to miss them. Okay, roger that. So we, we go to make this turn, and um, – on our left flank that we had two new guys and one of our EOD guys. Uh, we didn't realize it in the moment, but they didn't make the turn. I don't know if they weren't listening to the radio or what the deal was, but uh, the, the in between me was the Terp and another guy. And they were like, Hey, those guys are gone. I'm like what? So yeah, I mean, pretty hairy situation. You know, you've got unknown enemy 
and us in this vegetation separated now. So um, my guy on the right flank was like, hey, man, I'm on the edge of the field. Why don't we push out? And those guys came up. We got them on the radio. I said, do the same thing. Push out on the left. Let's move up to the north. Let's reconnect. Then we'll go in and wrap these guys up. So we did that. And we're, we're pushing out of the, uh, you know, the northeast corner of this field. And our last couple of guys that were stopping, stepping out of the field, uh, literally uh, one of them stepped on an enemy fighter that was laying there in the ambush line and, and engaged him. And when that happened, it just set off this ambush. So we estimate that it was, uh, I don't know, you know, 14, 15 guys in this ambush line had two PKM machine guns set up. And uh, I had, I was walking towards the road to link up with the other guys uh, with our turp and the, everybody else kind of behind me when that happened. So um, our medic initially got hit, you know, he took a round right below the knee. And then uh, one of our other guys ran forward to grab him and start dragging him back. And then he got stitched up. And then I was, I got hit in the arm uh, probably within the first minute and stitched across the body armor, um, started yelling. They were trying to move back, started uh, laying down fire. And when I was yelling, uh, I think both machine guns got turned on me at that point. And that's when I was taking rounds uh, off my helmet, I off my gun. I uh, got my left night vision tube shot off and turned um, to, to move back. The only point of cover we had, so it was nothing but like, thousand yards of empty Iraqi desert behind us, uh, if not more. And then, um, there was like a tractor tire about 15 yards behind me, like a big, like John Deere style tire. So the guys had fallen back to that and I turned to try and move back to that. It was at that point that a round caught me in the face, um, kind of right in front of my ear, traveled through my face, blew off my, most of my nose, uh, blew out my right cheekbone broke what was left of the cheek and kicked it out to the right, like shattered the head of it, broke the head of my jaw, shattered my jaw down to my chin, kind of vaporized the orbital floor, broke all the bones above my eye, eye dropped down and it, and it knocked me out. So, um, and the guy saw this and thought that I was dead. So I'm unconscious on the ground and literally this entire firefight's like happening over me. Um, so came to, um, however long later. And I'm assuming that was a 762 by 54 round that hit you? Yeah. 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 I was hit. All of them uh, that we can tell, you know, were, were PKM. PKM. Um, which sometimes I think I'm actually kind of lucky. And, you know, people are like, what? But well, I was so close and it was such a high velocity round because AKs have a tendency to tumble. Yeah. Uh, that I actually think it did less damage than it would have. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, an AK round is is probably gonna do do worse in that area than than that round because it's yeah, it's gonna it's moving slower and it's gonna fucking tumble. Yeah, you know? same same with like the one of the bitches of green tip is is the velocity and, and uh, penetration is such. That's what she said. That, uh, <laughs> For me, it's velocity. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so much penetration. I'm like a, I'm like a rabbit. Yeah. I'm really fast. It's just not that fucking big. Wait, what? Uh, the uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, we shot a guy in Iraq that, uh, I mean, I think we, we didn't count how many holes. There was a, a, a fuck ton. I mean, he was a pin cushion in his torso, and that motherfucker ran for 60, 65 yards before he went down, you know. Um, well, if you look at, I mean, if you've done a, a boar hunting. 
Yeah. I mean, you shoot a boar with, I, dude, riddle. I mean, we just did that not that long ago. You riddle a boar with five, five, six, and they'll run. Yeah, just little forever. pen pricks. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, so w- one question while this is happening, obviously you recall it well enough to uh, to tell the story. When it was happening, um, was the adrenaline such that, that there wasn't pain that, or, or could you feel it even in that moment? So when I was hitting the arm, no, that was super painful. Um, and I realized it. I actually thought my arm had been shot off. Um, can, can you show kind of, do you know where it went in? And Oh, yeah. So the, uh, the rounds, so I was hit by two rounds. So one round hit me in the bicep and the other round hit me on the inside of the forearm. So it like blew everything out the backside. And what happened when it hit me, my arm, um, it went back and it caught on my like radio and it, I couldn't feel a thing. Like literally it, it felt like, um, it felt like hitting your funny bone, but amplify it by like a thousand. Like literally I felt like, um, I had been like a gorilla had hit me in the arm with a bat and then like an electrical lightning bolt had traveled up my arm, up the back of my spine and just slammed me in the back of the head. And then I couldn't feel anything. So when I reached over, I didn't feel my arm. So that's why I originally thought. And then I think when I came to laying on the ground, I was laying on my back. And I and I, I, I have to think I might have been laying on my arm because I also didn't feel it then. I reached for it then because I was thinking to myself, holy shit, you got your arm shot off. Like, dude, you got to get a tourniquet on or you're going to bleed out. So it was kind of a shock to me. And that's why if you've ever read the Trident at the beginning, I say my arm was blown off, but then I realize, you know, when I get to the hospital, you know, that I realize, holy shit, I still have an arm. Yeah. So that was super painful. Um, when I came to after being hit in the face, I felt no pain. Like, uh, but I just felt messed up. Like I was like, dude, you are seriously fucked up. Um, and it took a minute to figure out like, Hey, I was trying to put two and two together. Like what happened? Like, you know, the fog of getting your bell rung and trying to, put two and two back together and then kind of realizing, Hey dude, you're still in a firefight. You know, literally, you, you know, you've got rounds traveling over you, like don't sit up, um, you know? And, um, and for whatever reason, I also, to this day, I don't know why I did it, but I took my helmet off in the uh, middle of that firefight. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. You know, the life-saving piece of equipment that I have, I took it off. This is, prote- this is too much protection. I got to yeah, take this exactly. off. Huh? I don't know why I did it. And I actually took a round through the helmet laying on the ground. Oh, sure. uh, so my helmet has a bullet hole through it right in the uh, forehead, which is why that's actually drawn on the, uh, um, that's actually drawn on the skull, but it was actually in my helmet. So yeah. the the damage to the skull, that's actually taken off the CT scan. But then my buddy who drew that, uh, drew it in the skull. For, uh, for those of you on the YouTube version, uh, I'm going to hold it up as close as I can. The uh, This is the coin that uh, Jay gave me uh, just before we sat down, but it's really cool. He's got the, like you said, the <clears throat> the bullet hole in the, in the skull and uh, and in the face where he was just talking about uh, getting shot. But I appreciate the coin. That's fucking really cool, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. Um, all right. So you come to, is, is the gunfight still taking place over top of you when you wake up? Is it still, you're just like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. What, uh, so what did you do at that point after you, you took, take your helmet off and decide, uh, I mean, were you, did you try to get on the radio or what, what happened? No, I called out. There was a lowland fire, and I called out to uh, my team lead. Um, we'll call him Al, and uh, and they were like dumbfounded. You know, he's like, "Holy shit, you're still alive!" And uh, and I knew how messed up I was, and I was like, "You don't have a whole lot of time." So I called out and kind of in a lull, and then I yelled out, "How long to the medevac?" 
And he was like, five minutes. Uh, fucking liar. <laughs> I think he told me five minutes at least three or four more times. It reminds me of the, uh, the movie Money Pit, right? How long is it going to take? Uh, two weeks. <laughs> fucking nine, nine, nine that was a later. great movie. Yeah. yeah. Every, every two weeks, like, how much longer? About uh, two weeks. <laughs> a year later, it's fucking still going. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, shit show. And, uh, I mean, I would not be here if it wasn't for the guys. I mean, they did a great job fighting back. Uh, my team leader actually ran forward in the Lowell Empire and got me and dragged me back and got a tourniquet on my arm. Uh, and the guys, you know, the, our medic shot. So they were the ones trying to figure out. I think they packed my face with Curlex and, you know, tried to figure out what the hell to do with me. Um, and then we ended up calling in, well, actually it was in between fire missions. We ended up calling in the fire mission and it ended up being, I don't know, eight or nine fire missions. Uh, but it was, uh, we literally had to call directly on our position, the gunship. I was only 45 feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down and they were about 15 yards behind me. And, um, and the gunship denied the first two requests. And they were like, dude, you, you guys have to figure out how to move back. Like, I mean, you're so danger close. We're going to kill you. And, um, and my team lead called back and was like, bro, like there's no place to go. Like there's nothing like it's nothing but empty Iraqi desert. Like we got dudes that are bleeding out and we're running out of ammo. The gunfight lasted about 40 minutes, I guess. So, and and you were hit right at the start. So, I mean, there's probably 30, 35 minutes that you were laying there fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how long I was unconscious. So I don't know. It was five (laughs) minutes, 10 minutes or whatever, but so anyways, they, uh, they called in these firemen. And I remember like, I mean, kind of surreal, um, to, to he Al called out to me and was like incoming and uh and you can hear you know you've been out there you can hear the gun go off and then like this period of time while it's coming down you know and then all of a sudden it like impacted like literally it felt like right in front of me um and blew up over us but it uh the first volley of rounds took out the machine gunner that was uh well at least injured him i could hear he stopped firing and i could hear him yelling uh, he was calling out to Allah and, um, and I, I do remember thinking standby fucker. Um, and then they <laughs> called in the next, uh, next volley. And, and I think it was somewhere in there when Al ran forward and grabbed me and got me back to the tire, got a tourniquet on my arm. Was there a specific award uh, for Al doing that? So I wanted him to get a Navy cross. Uh, it got downgraded to a, uh, silver star. Yeah. Uh, and our other guy got a silver star also for pulling our medic back in that. To this day, I will always stand that Al deserves a cross. Yeah. Uh, I would like, I've talked to my boss who's still, my boss at that time who's still active duty. Can we go back someday and resubmit? Yeah. So. Fucking A, man. Um, all right, so the second volley of fire extinguishes the the enemy ambush pretty well. Yeah, and then they call in a couple more, uh, and then uh, finally we call in the medevac. Uh, medevac lands about 75 yards from us. Uh, Al comes up and tries to help me get up, which it was at that point I felt the pain again when he started moving me. I was like, holy shit, that hurts. I'm like, dude, stop. Like, let me get up. And uh, got up and walked to the helicopter. I, I told him, um, <laughs> kind of funny shit you think about but i was like dude grab my arm and grab my helmet um uh and i'm sure he was like your arm what are you talking about yeah but uh i remember walking to the helo and like i was i was hunched over because i was bleeding so badly and i just 
uh, to this day, I can still kind of see this visual of all this blood just pouring out of my face as I walked to the Hilo. And uh, I was first one to the Hilo. Uh, they were obviously both the other guys had leg injuries, so they were helping them. And uh, they, I remember grabbing on to that, that door handle of the 60, and it was a TF-160 of Medivac. Um, so big shout out to those guys. So they got, they got me in and they sat me up against the far wall next to the door gunner. And then they put, put in our other two guys. Well, it wasn't really configured for three dudes. It was configured for two. So they couldn't shut the door. So this is where I don't remember parts of this story, which is interesting because years later I got to meet the medevac crew. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I managed to track them down and I got to meet both the door gunners and the uh, flight medic on that helo. And they filled in gaps and they said, yeah, you know, he was feverishly working between the three of us. And what he did is he had me put my thumb up on my chest and he made the door gunner like keep an eye on me, like, and if my hand dropped, like to yell at me. Um, cause yeah, dude, I was like, I was telling myself, stay awake, stay alive. And I was convinced cause everything in me was like, just go to sleep. And that, but I knew if I went to sleep, like I'd never wake up again, but I didn't know it, that I was drifting in and out of consciousness. So they would like yell at me and I'd get my thumb back up and, you know, <laughs> fucking bleed all over myself. Um, but interesting thing that they told me, which is kind of one, they didn't know who we were. They just knew we were SEALs. And they didn't know uh, if we survived or not. Like, it only was years oh, wow. later when I managed to track them down and said, hey, man. And they were like, oh, my God, we totally remember like that. Like a crazy ex-girlfriend, Phoenix rising from the edge. <laughs> exactly. You track those fuckers. Some like asshole. <laughs> um, but they told me, and this I found, I don't know, crazy. I never would have thought about this. So because the door was open. And we were all bleeding like struck, stuck pigs. I mean, I was shot multiple times. Um uh, our other guy was shot multiple times and the medic was, you know, pretty severe injury, you know, below his knee. Like we were bleeding all over the inside of that helo and the wind was swirling through. So it literally covered everything in the helo in blood. They said when they got to Baghdad and landed, like they were all coated in blood. Wow. And, uh, he said it took like a month to try and get the blood out of all the, like all everything. Yeah. The, so the, uh, the, the AC vents, mm-hmm. fucking Q-tip, the AC vents. The, uh, I mean, that sounds like a scene out of a fucking movie. You know? Yeah. Uh, were the other two guys, the corpsman and the other uh, bro of yours, did, did they make it okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they did great. Um, did they go back to full duty or did... They didn't go... Uh, one of the guys, I think he tried to go back to full duty the fastest. And then... Um, he actually tried to screen like a year later and uh and the day screen was like the worst weather i mean like a, like a monsoon hurricane was hitting when those guys did that screening mm-hmm. and uh he he didn't make the cut so he went out to the west coast and everything i've heard he's still doing great yeah, so uh the other guy is he did a couple more platoons and then now he's out and he's doing good i talked to him on a regular basis oh, that's good um all right so what was the last thing you remember from from that medevac ride do you remember unloading off of it and going into i do yeah absolutely there was an incident that uh for years i uh kind of question if it actually happened so and there are pieces it's almost like you see clips in a movie in your mind like i remember i wasn't able to walk when i got off the helo um so they unloaded me off the helo and they put me on this little cart and uh i remember riding on that cart looking up and our medic was with me and i remember he was like yelling at me 
Um, and we went under like this underpass or I don't know, could have been a rooftop going into the bay or whatever it was. But I remember there was a dude like smoking a cigarette, like looking down at me. Like I remember that vividly. Mm. And then uh, I remember them uh, like taking my gear off, like they got to remove all your gear. So I remember them like cutting all my gear off. And I was just like, dude, stay awake, stay alive. You're almost there. And they got me into the um, operating room. And like all this activity occurred and uh, like, I'm like, Hey dude, I am good. Like I can let go now and I can die and they'll save me. Like um, I had, uh, I had watched this show uh, called Baghdad ER or um, I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was like, they were following our medical you know teams in uh, Iraq. And I remember the statistic that I had seen that they said, Hey man, our guys are so good that if you show up with a pulse, you got a 90% chance of making it. So that was like what I was focused on in my mind. So I got there and I'm like, dude, I'm good. Like I can die now because I showed up, check, yeah. winning and, uh, and they'll save me. So like I started to let go and I just remember like this darkness and just drifting off. But right about that moment, I felt this tug on my left side and I, I kind of look up uh, and this nurse is standing there and yells out, he's still got a bomb on him. And dude, everybody runs out of the operating room. Like everybody, like it was like something out of a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> and I remember thinking, are you shitting me? Like, dude, like I've got nothing. Like I'm like dying. And, uh, and that was like my last thought. Yeah. And, uh, so years later I actually found that nurse. Like she reached out to me and was like, Hey, I was one of your nurses in the operating room. I was like, Tell me this happened. And she was like, yeah, I was your nurse. Dude, that is such a trip fucking years later to link up with uh, people that play I, that pivotal role. I've tried to track down a lot of the people. Um, I'd love to still find. I, I haven't found uh, all the, the, the doctors. I'd like to find yeah. some more of the doctors that were yeah. in the operating room that saved me. Yeah, that's a trip. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, so what, what was the next thing you remember after that? Germany or, or all the way back at Walter Reed or no, I'm so that no, the next thing I remember, uh, no, I was pretty lucid. Uh, th there are periods that I don't remember, but I remember waking up, uh, in Baghdad and, uh, my CEO and mass chief were there. And so they they were, you know, they're there and I'm talking to them or I wasn't talking. As a matter of fact, I do remember the very first thing I remember looking at my arm and being like, Holy shit, I still got an arm. Like, cool. Um, and then I remember I tried to speak and I couldn't talk and the nurse was like, Hey, yeah, you've been all shot in the face. You're trached and wired shut. You're not going to be able to speak. So I was like, all right, well, let me get a, you know, let me write something down. So they gave me a notebook and I, I wrote down uh, three questions. I wrote down, uh, are the guys okay? Um, has my wife been notified? Do and, I still have a dick? And well, almost <laughs> I said, do I still look pretty? <laughs> so, like, uh, uh well, yeah, you never just, really had one. So, no. And they were like, no, you were never that pretty anyways. But, uh, did they, I mean, did they answer them? Yeah. 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 That's, that's what they said. Yeah. They were like, hey, guys are good. They were like, they're out of surgery and they're stable. Uh, the CEO is like, I've talked to your wife. She knows. And, uh, they said, no, you never look pretty. So, you know. <laughs> um, so I remember that. I remember, um, they, they, what I don't remember is they moved me from, moved me from Baghdad to Blot. I don't remember that at all. Uh, I do remember waking up in Balad in the ICU because the guys came up to Balad and, and got, I got to see them and that was pretty awesome. Um, 
And then I don't remember going from Balad to Germany. I don't remember that at all. There's no memory of that. As a matter of fact, pretty cool. One of the nurses in Balad, I mean, here's a crazy story. I go play in a golf tournament last year and, uh, and this dude comes up to me and he goes, Hey man, I was one of your nurses in Balad. And I was like, Holy shit, dude. Like, I don't remember any of that. And he pulls wow. out his phone and shows me a picture of me. No like, shit. like on loading. He's like, I loaded you on the bus to Germany. I was like, dude, I don't remember that at all. And yeah. And the I see, I'm in the, you know, I got all this contraptions and shit on me. Yeah. So, um, so I don't remember that at all. The flight home, uh, was miserable. Um, I do remember that. I thought I was going to suffocate. Um, if anybody's ever had a trach, they suck. Um, you get a lot of mucus and congestion. And if it's not constantly cleaned out, especially, I, I think if you're not used to it and I was not used to it, like when you move, it causes coughing fits, which I think creates more mucus and shit. And, uh, I just, the whole flight, I felt like I was going to suffocate. This makes me want to go have a smoke real quick. Yeah, yeah. For, Jesus Christ. Good luck to those of you who like, you know, lung cancer's a bitch, yeah, baby. It's making me want to clear my throat just hearing you tell the fucking story. So, and I wore that <clears throat> trach for seven months and Holy two days. Holy fuck. It sucked. Seven fucking months. So, but do you, that, I mean, did you get to the point where you're cleaning it out yourself or you really can't? My wife was. Yeah. Yeah, dude, my wife is a saint. Trooper. Uh, I mean, she was my best nurse. I mean, when they finally brought me home, I mean, I had... I still had the trach. I was still wired shut. I had an external fixator. Uh, I had a stomach tube that they were feeding me through. And my wife was, you know, she was my wow. main nurse that was yeah, helping me with all that. Fucking amazing. Um, so seven, seven months. I and mean, is that how long you were, you were at Walter Reed or from the time you got injured until you, you made it home? It was a seven month period. No, no, it was, uh, eight weeks. I was out, uh, Walter Reed or Bethesda. It hadn't switched over yet. So eight weeks, and then they sent me home, and I started all the outpatient stuff. Uh, but and that was—I'll be honest—that was a little intimidating, you know, because they were—I didn't feel like I was ready. Man, I could barely walk. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the time I was still in a, a, a you know wheelchair. Uh, you know, I still got all these tubes. They—they they wanted to cap the trach so I could start breathing from my mouth, and that—that that was a weird experience too. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, they said, Hey man, we've come to find that people tend to heal better when they're home. Uh, they're more relaxed, more comfortable. I will admit a hospital sucks. Dude. Yeah. You're every five minutes, you know, somebody's poking and prodding you. And yeah. so, yeah, I went home after eight weeks and then it just started, um, you know, I mean, it was, uh, almost 40 surgeries over four years. Wow. Uh, are you at a point now where you still have to have like any maintenance surgeries or anything? Or is it pretty much you're, you're finished with that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm done. I mean, you know, I, you know, there are people that talk about scar revision and, you know, there it's been interesting over the years. I've had a couple of orthopedics that doctors that are like, Oh yeah, you know, we can give you more movement. And then they take a look at the x-ray and they're like, Holy shit. Like we don't know how your arm functions. Yeah. Um, what, so what, what is the deal with, uh, with the limited range of movement? Is it, is it, uh, because of, of metal and such in it or what? No, most of the metal has been removed. I do, I do still have some remnants. Uh, I do still have some pins and I had a screw that broke off and stuff like that. That's in there. I still have, uh, metal pins in my jaw, uh, which is kind of interesting to look at under the x-ray. I still have screws in my skull. Yeah. Um, but, uh, for the arm, um, so pretty amazing. I got to give a shout out to this guy. And this is a pretty high level of medicine, in my opinion. Uh, there are some doctors out there that I think are pretty arrogant 
you know, I mean, I think they get some of that God complex and they're like, you know, I can do anything. And uh, the only reason I still have an arm is because the head of orthopedics at Bethesda at the time was a former SEAL. Oh. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, my team's like, we should amputate your arm. Because when I, um, when I came to, I had no use of my left hand. Uh, and they were like, your elbow is destroyed. Um, you know, they, they could not have done a better job. I mean, this, this bullet shattered the head of my ulna radius and this bullet, uh, took off a huge chunk and, and shattered the head of my, um, my, my, uh, humerus. Okay. So like literally the two parts that make an elbow, you know, or the three parts, if you will, it just kind of destroyed. So they were going to amputate. And then this doctor, his name's Dan Belake. He's out now. I name him in the book. He's an amazing guy. He became a friend. He fought to save my arm, but it reached a point where he was like, Jay, I don't know what else to do anymore. Um, I grew a whole bunch of extra bone growth, something called heterotopic ossification. Um, Can you and, spell that? <laughs> no. for, for the audience, I mean, I know how to spell it. but That's a, uh, I just want to let you know, that's a 47 point word in Scrabble. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> fucking, is, is, can you even make it in Scrabble? So, no, you'd have to steal shit. Yeah. But, um, and HO is a real problem from war. A lot of guys get it because what happened, I, and there may be some medical person out there that says, no, you don't know what you're talking about, but I don't know. I studied a lot when I was in the hospital because <clears throat> one of the downsides of like really severe injuries is there's like no textbook. Yeah. So like when the doctors come in, they're not like, hey, bro, this is what happened to you. And here's what we're going to do to fix you. They come in and they go, you're really fucked up. Yeah. So we could take option A, which has some risks, and we could take option B, which has different risks, and we could take option C, which has different risks. And all these have different outcomes. What do you want to do? And, I'm, and my wife and I are like, how, how do we know? I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah. So we ended up like, you know, just, you know, like reading medical journals and trying to figure things out. So this HO, um, it's oftentimes caused by a severe injury where I think bone tissue gets interspersed with muscle tissue and things like that. And it just, the body's in a weird state and it actually starts growing wisp of bone. And wow. that's exactly what it is. So I literally had like this huge bony elbow and my arm was fused in place. I couldn't bend it. And uh, my doctor, Dan Belek, was like, hey man, you've kind of reached the point of, I don't know what else to do with you. Um, so I have the doctor I learned at who's at Johns Hopkins, like you should go there. So I went there and that doctor totally rebuilt my elbow, um, as best he could. So, and gave me a little bit of mobility. I can bend this much and I can extend this much. Um, from, from a physical activity standpoint, um, is there pain? Like if you try to work out and use it to a certain extent and, and also, like, I mean, it still still seems like there's a, a significant amount of muscle tissue there. I mean, you're able to, to still use it enough to, to maintain that and not atrophy, it looks like, right? And I use it because I honestly feel like the more I, if I don't use it, I feel like it hurts more. It hurts more to use it or not use it, yeah. you know? So, and that's kind of my mindset. And they told me that, that at the very beginning, this, this doctor that rebuilt it was like, hey, you're going to have about 10 years. And after 10 years, he's like, the uh, arthritis will be so bad that you're just going to need a new elbow. Yeah. He also told me I'd never lift more than 50 pounds with this arm. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with firsthand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. 
covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. So I've beat both those things by trying to stay as active as possible. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, it's I guess it's coming to understand the difference between pain and discomfort. Like sometimes it'll hurt. Like I'll tell you, just hanging from a bar puts stress on it, but it's not pain. It's just kind of uncomfortable and it stretches it out. Yeah. So I just do it. I do anything. I, I try to figure out ways <clears throat> to do anything I can uh, to keep it moving. Yeah. From kind of a uh, supportive tensile strength standpoint, uh, say bench press as an example. Um, I know you t- before we came on air, you were, you were talking about doing a 300, 400, 500 goal, uh, which is 300 bench, 400 squat, 500 deadlift. And in terms of that, is there, do you run the risk of, because it's so manufactured and, and certain angles shear things off? I mean, has that been cleared by a doctor? Like, do you worry? No, about- they would probably tell me what the fuck are you yeah. doing? I mean, do you worry about that? Have, have you- I do a little bit, but. I am not jumping up in crazy ways. I mean, it has been years. I mean, I'll be honest. I couldn't even lift the bar when I first started trying to lift again. Yeah. Um, you know, a 45 pound bar, I could not lift. Um, so it has been years that I've worked myself up. Um, uh, you know, I deadlifted, um, um, 385 three times, uh, earlier this year. So this, this ramp up to 500, you know, can I do it? I don't know. That's why I got a coach. And and also, like I said, understanding the difference between pain and discomfort. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm getting up to, you know, 450 or something like that, and then like, man, I feel like I'm tearing something then I'm going to have to stop. Yeah. They, th- but doctors don't like when they look on an x-ray, I mean, it is held together by muscle and scar tissue. I, I don't have the normal um, physiological makeup of a regular elbow. Yeah. Uh, that's why, you know, when I've had doctors that have looked at it after the fact, they're like, dude, we don't know how your arm just doesn't dislocate on its own, yeah. but it, it it's strong. I mean, yeah. it holds together. I mean, when I deadlift, it's not painful. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's encouraging at least. Uh, I am curious the, the first time you came home and saw your kids, um, or, or I'm assuming they probably came and saw you the, the first time that you saw them, uh, post injury, what, what was that like? So this is something where I got to give, this is where my wife and I, and I'm really blessed with her. Uh, she really is the warrior wife. Um, her and I were in lockstep agreement. One, I did not, and she was in agreement, want the kids to see me in the beginning. Um, I didn't want them to see me in the hospital bed. And I looked really rough in the beginning. I had massive swelling. You remember, <laughs> remember the cartoon character Arnold that had the football head? Yeah. Like, the right side of my head looked like that. It literally was swollen out to here. My eyes were totally bloodshot, um, bright red. I had nothing left of a nose. I had these orange tubes they had put in what was left of my nose. My face was crisscrossed with blue stitches. Um, and I'm traked and I'm just messed up. So I was like, I don't want to scare the kids. Um, and, uh, and the other thing I couldn't walk, I had lost so much blood. I was so weak that I couldn't walk. So I told my wife, I said, Hey, I want them to fix me some facially. And then I want the ability to walk into the room where they are. So there was that. 
And then we, thankfully, we had good family that was able to keep the kids on their regular schedule. So even though my wife was up at the hospital, we had family at home that was keeping them school, soccer, all the different things that kept their schedule, which I think is really important for kids. Um, so it was really three, three and a half weeks before I saw the kids for the first time. Were, were you emotional the first time? <clears throat> yeah, I was. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to... Um, I recognize no different in leadership, you know, people react off how you react. So if I'm a mess, my kids are going to think I'm a mess yeah. uh, and they're going to be a mess. And then this is where my wife was really smart. She went and bought them toys um, that I could give them. And, uh, and they were young. I mean, my son was seven and my middle daughter was four and my youngest was two. And uh, so, yeah, we were in the little family room at Bethesda and, you know, I gave them toys and, and uh, yeah, I think my middle daughter, you know, told my wife, you know, you know, daddy, daddy, daddy looks funny, but he, he seems okay. Yeah. So. Man, was the, was the seven-year-old uh, similarly unshaken or was he more affected by it? I, I think he was okay. Um one, I don't know. He's uh, he he was a boy, and we gave him a Nintendo DS. So like, dude, he <laughs> he's was like, yeah, whatever. He's like, yeah, I, I mean, and he had wanted a Nintendo DS for a while, so he was like totally in heaven. Um, years later, I feel like I saw some of the impact, and my kids have been great. And I think w my wife and I have always just maintained a positive mindset and how we've dealt with everything. And don't get me wrong; I mean, I do remember there was a there was a morning when I was home. And I woke up and I just think the weight of all of it, like waking up and um, um, I'd have multiple infection problems. The nose they had originally tried to build me, they had cut off. So I literally just had a hole in my face and I just, um, they had messed up the eye surgery. So I had an eye patch and it was super painful. Uh, I had all this pressure in my head and, you know, I'm still trached and I'm being fed through this damn tube. And like, I woke up just crying my eyes out like this fucking sucks. Like, you know. But, um, my youngest daughter came up and I was just like, dude, you got to get up. Like, you got to get up. You can't lay here. You've, you've got to get up for her. You know, you got to like set the example. The elves are watching. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that, that was a kind of a moment that I definitely remember. But other than that, I feel like, um, the kids did good with it and we stayed positive with it, which I think they fed off. Yeah. Um, the, the only thing I will say that I feel like we're, I think for team guys, we take for granted the world our kids grow up in and we don't, you know, cause we grew up in this world for us, you know, it's just kind of a normal world and you don't realize how different and, and especially in wartime it is. <clears throat> and, and I think that came home pretty, uh, vividly to me. We went to a, a event, um, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe three or four years after my injury, we got invited to an event and, you know, my wife and kids were with me and someone was talking to my son and he was kind of off to the side. He might've been what, 12 years old at this point. And they said, Oh, do you want to be a seal like your dad? And my son in that candor that only kids can have was like, no, he's like, <laughs> he's like seals get killed and blown up and seriously wounded like all the time. Because that, that was his interpretation. That was his world. Yeah. Well, I mean, and he had seen it with friends of ours that yeah. had been killed. And so that was kind of a, wow, this is the world my kids have grown up in. And now they're, you know, they're great. Yeah. So It, it is amazing the, uh, the lens with which children 
you know, view, not just view, but accept, uh, whatever it is that they're around, you know, and, and what, and I agree it, it's hard to, to kind of rationalize or, um, or reconcile what, what normal is for them, you know, and, and, you know, whether it's kids in this country, I mean, there's kids all over the world that have just horrible experiences, you oh, know, yeah. that, that, you know, are largely unaffected because they, they don't know anything different, you know, but it, it is, uh, it is truly remarkable. And I think speaks, speaks volumes to the <clears throat> resiliency of, of human nature of, of being able to, um, to be able to, to live through those types of things and, uh, and be largely unaffected. I am curious, um, for you, I know you, you just mentioned the one time you were crying. Were there any other times I, I want to pull the, uh, the sign, um, if I, I believe it's still, still in here, right? The sign that mm -hmm. you wrote. Um, but while, while I'm looking for that, the, uh, were there other times from the time that you first got back until, um, you kind of were as recovered as you're going to be become long-term wise that, uh, that you had moments of, I don't want to call them weakness, but just moments of, of hardship where you kind of broke down or. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were <clears throat> that, that one stands out the most, but I mean, there were definitely, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, to go, um, you know, to go through that sucks. I mean, I don't care who you are. Um, but what I tried to focus on was I still have my limbs. I, you know, I could come back. Um, and I'll be honest. I mean, world works in interesting ways. I mean, I think God works in interesting ways. Um, I think that everything that happened to me screwing up as a leader and having to go through that journey, which a lot of people think, Oh, your injury must've been the worst thing that's ever happened to you. No, man, like failing as a leader and being ostracized from the community for a while and having to earn that back was the hardest thing I've ever been through. So when I got wounded, even though, trust me, there were times it sucked. I was like, ah, come on, man, you've been through worse. You like, you climbed out of that dark hole that, yeah. you know, guys would have, you know, not thought twice if you had just quit and left. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, yeah, that's probably it. I, I, I want to take a quick second to read, uh, the sign that you wrote, um, that was on your door uh, at the hospital. It says, attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job I love, doing it for the people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? Question mark. That is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you are about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere from the management with a trident tacked in there. Uh, when did you write that and what, uh, what was the inspiration for doing so? So that got written probably. And do you, have you memorized it? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No. Cause I talk a lot about it. Um, I talk a lot about it for a lot of reasons. Um, one that, cause it really was a little bit of a defining moment. Uh, although I won't say that it was like I sat there and thought about it for days before I wrote it. Um, it all happened pretty quickly and it just, um, it, there was, I mean, it was a lot. It was pretty heavy to, to, in those first few days, to come to the realization of everything that happened. Um, I'll be honest. I remember in the very beginning, one night, I dreamed that it was all a dream. Really? And I dreamed that I woke up and I was okay uh, and that I just dreamt all that. Did which you wake is, up pissed off when... 
Well, no, because then it got even weirder because then I dreamed that not only had then that dream turned into a nightmare because I not only dreamed that it had happened, that I was actually injured worse and like fucking couldn't talk or anything. It was kind of or couldn't move or anything. It was, but all that was very vivid. But uh, anyways, it um, so there were several days where I was kind of struggling with everything. And um, and, you know, the doctors saying, hey, you know, this was at the very beginning when they're talking about, you know, we might have to amputate your arm and um, you're going to be trached and all these different things for a long time. You know, you're talking years of surgeries to put you back together. You know, your special operations career is over. So struggling with all that. And one day um, I had some uh, people in the room and uh, they, I was drifting off and they were kind of having a conversation to themselves Um and in a military hospital is pretty in war is a hard place to be, especially on a wounded war. I mean, dude, you got dudes who are burned and blown up and missing limbs and traumatic brain injuries and shot in the face. And, you know, so their conversation was really, uh, it was pitiful. It was like, Oh gosh, you know, these young men and women, we send them off to war and this is the after effect and they're never going to be the same. You know, they're never going to be able to be successful. You know, they're always going to be damaged. And they kind of left and, and, you know, I was in that really light state where you can hear what people are saying, but you're not quite awake. But the more I thought about it, the more it kind of, so, so married, <laughs> that's how my wife listens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. What was that, honey? I, so, yeah. So, uh, she, uh, my wife actually came back in and I was, I was kind of angry about it. I was like, you know, is that me? Like, is that going to be my end state? Am I going to be like the you know, the, the Lieutenant Dan of Forrest Gump, you know, just, just disgruntled veteran, you know, throwing ice cream in the bedpan. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I, and I'll be honest, I don't think if I had been through the journey I'd been through before, if I would have come to this decision as quickly as I did. And, And this is where I tell people, you know, I think the greatest gift you have in this life is free will. You, no matter what bad thing happens to you, you know, you decide how you're going to react to it. You know, you can, you can lay there and feel sorry for yourself and be the victim, which is kind of what I did when I got myself in trouble. You know, I was the victim, you know, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, everybody did this to me. Yeah. Or, you know, you can choose to be the victor and be positive and just drive forward because the one thing you can't do is, you know, by sheer will change the outcome of what happened and you can never go back and change the past. All you can do is shape your future. So, I, so you have a choice, you have a choice in what you're going to do. And I thought about that and I thought about how am I going to, you know, I got kids, I got a wife. And I, I also thought about, you know, there's other wounded kids around me and like, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was pretty old. I was 32 when I got wounded. And, you know, most of these guys literally that were wounded around me were like between 18 and 22. So I was like, dude, you're not going to do that. That ain't you. Like you are going to be positive and you're going to get off this X, which I hadn't even thought of that phrase back then, but that was, that was kind of the mindset. So when my wife came in, I told her, I said, Hey, never again, nobody's going to come into this room with pity. I said, I'm, I refuse to feel sorry for myself and I'm not going to let anybody else. So that's how that, and I wrote out that sign right then and there and, uh, told her to put it on the door and it, you know, uh, a firefighter took a picture of it and wrote a blog about it a couple of days later and it went viral. Yeah. I I remember seeing it long before I ever met you. Um, you know, and, and just for the listener, Jay and I have actually known each other for, for a number of years now. Yeah. Uh, hats off to, uh, to Buffalo chip and 
and uh, you know the the whole yeah. Sturg- Sturgis crew as it relates to Buffalo Chip. Yes, the Buffalo. It's such good times. Um, you know because that's how how we know each other. And uh, actually, this book, uh, before I forget, is is the original copy that you gave me back uh, way back when when we first met. So nice, man. Yeah. So I, I still have it. Uh, it's it's treasured in my my bookcase, my varsity bookcase at at home in my office. Thank you, sir. But. Uh, but you know the the point I wanted to bring up is I remember seeing that sign and it was completely unrelated to the community like it was just on the internet somewhere that popped up in a news feed or something and I was like I read it and I was like oh that's cool and then I see the trident I'm like motherfucker you know and uh, <laughs> I was like that's fucking badass you know it just it was neat to see and we didn't put the trident it wasn't us oh, it, I mean it was a, it was a team guy yeah and to this day I don't remember who it was yeah but somebody cool. had come to the room and they took their trident off and they tacked it that's into the awesome. sign yeah that's really cool but you know to me it was just like man that's uh you know way to represent like it was a, it was a proud moment for me to see that being represented in the in the U.S. media, not you know a team guy buddy sent it to me like it was you know in the fucking news essentially, and uh, it was just it was really neat to see and uh, you know and then to get to meet you you know down the road a couple of years later was uh, was a special moment. It was it was neat to to put put the face to the to the sign name if you will. But um, um, you know to me one of the things there, there's two kind of key components that I'd love to to talk about in terms of recovery aftermath what motivates you now, um, you know, all kind of in the same vein. Uh, and those two things are the suicide lesson, uh, and kind of the never give up lesson, which, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on, uh, after I just share a couple of, of mine is, you know, suicide is a pretty prominent, um, issue in, in the veteran community and, and in life. I mean, let's be honest, the Western society, you know, suicide is a, is an, an enormously, um, contributing cause of death that uh, that you know if you think about it from a biological standpoint like doesn't really fucking make sense you know i mean self-preservation is is kind of the the vein or the backbone the foundation the benchmark principle of a species right is is to self-preserve and to and to procreate um you know so for that thought process to enter human beings as frequently as it does is is an interesting um issue I think that uh you know that, that's worth looking at but I, I there's one thing that you know I, I love all the feedback and the and the messages that we get uh whether it's you know email or on social media or on YouTube comments or what have you that um you know a lot of of really neat uh feedback of saying you know hey this episode was so and so I was at a, a shitty spot in my life and and this guy said something and you know whatever and uh, you know, to me, there's no greater compliment, um, you know, in, in having a podcast than, than to get <clears throat> messages like that where, where, you know, a guest I had on made a difference or, or something that we said motivated them to change something in their life that ultimately was a, an enormously positive impact. But on the suicide front, um, you know, I, I've known a number of guys, uh, you know, who have taken their own lives. I've had a number of guests on here who have talked about being in that, that mental space of, of almost doing it. Uh, I feel extraordinarily fortunate to have never been in that position to ever seriously considered that uh, for myself. But I do think it's important to to share one thing about it that uh, you know that I think you know kind of rationalizes um, what you know what the impact has. You know, one, one thing that you hear a lot of times is that you know people talk about suicide and that it's a selfish behavior. Uh, you know, and, and for a long time, it <clears throat> I, I didn't really understand because I'd never really been through it, 
um, you know, kind of what people meant by that. But, um, and I don't remember where, where I heard this. I, I apologize for, I'm sure, you know, multiple people have come up with it, but, um, <clears throat> one of the neatest ways to, to kind of couch the, uh, the element of suicide in terms of pain is that, you know, most people are in a lot of pain when they, when they do it. Um, you know, all sorts of different types of pain, but, um, you know, the, the reference is, is that suicide doesn't end the pain. Uh, you know, what it does is it transfers it from you to the people that you care about, you know? And, and so in that reference, for anybody out there listening, I think, you know, if there's one fucking thing that you think about is think about the people that are going to hurt, uh, that you're going to hurt and, and who you're going to transfer that pain to, uh, in doing something like that. And again, it's powerful to hear you talk about seeing a picture of your wife and kids, uh, you know, and, and that, that kind of clicking, I think of saying, wait a minute, like, you know, I got this crew that's fucking depending on me and, and this is, you know, the shitty way out that's just going to fuck them over. And, and, uh, to me, that's, a, that's a powerful lesson and a powerful moment. I, I appreciate you sharing it. Um, the second point is just to never give up is that, <clears throat> you know, the, the adversity that, that created the mentality that, uh, that ultimately led to you being able to be so successful with such a, a, a hard injury physically, mentally, emotionally, family wise, whatever. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, and just like you said, it's, it, it was instrumental, I would say in, in you being able to overcome, um, you know, that, that heart of an injury and, and be able to not just overcome it, but actually become more successful in spite of it. Um, and I, I'd love to get to, to get your, your thoughts on both of those two things. So, yeah, on the suicide front, um, Suicide is, uh, I have watched it because um, I've lost several friends. As a matter of fact, a mentor of mine took his life in 2016, a guy that I had known my whole career, family guy, and uh, and it destroyed that family. He had three <clears throat> kids and, and two, I don't know, it destroyed his wife, which they already were having a lot of problems before that occurred, and it destroyed two of his three kids. And one the youngest has done much better and I'm working and trying to help him. Uh, but the other two like are gone. Like yeah. they'll Just never check out. So it, 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 it reminds me of a, so, uh, uh, literally a suicide bomber. Like when you make that decision to take your life, it is like setting off a bomb and you are, um, sending that frag and pain uh, like you said, I mean, out to everybody around you. So, and what I want to tell people is that, you know, it's never too late. You know, like I, I am living proof that you can come back from, from bad shit. And I mean, um, you know, I, you know, I destroyed my professional reputation and, and managed to come back. I mean, it ain't going to be easy. It is going to be painful. You, you may not, it, it, you may, it, the outcome may not be what you think it's going to be, but no matter what, it's never too late, man. And there are people out there that, that care about you. That's the reality. I mean, um, sometimes it's not the people that you want to care about you because that's, you know, sometimes a reason why people decide to take their lives. But man, it's a, it's, I'm so grateful to still be alive, um, both from my injury, both from those dark times that I went through. And, uh, 
yeah, I mean, you just every day, you know, you have an opportunity to do something with your life. And I know when you're going through depression and hard moments, that's hard to see, man. You are in the storm, in the darkness. And uh, that's where I just, you know, try and find somebody to, to help you um, reach out. Don't, don't, uh, and that's, it's the exact opposite of what people do. You know, yeah. people turn in, they isolate, they Clamp avoid. Um, so I just try and encourage you out there. If you're thinking about that, um, don't do it. The, the other component I want to hit on in this specifically within the veteran community, cause I've gotten really passionate about this. Um, I used to believe that if our veterans could find uh, a new purpose after the military, like that would fix their, you know, the guys who were depressed and the guys who were ultimately committing suicide. But we are really starting to see a, a, um, a scourge uh, with traumatic brain injuries related to blast injuries, which is relating to something called CTE, which is the same problem you're seeing in football, football players. Yeah. So a lot of our guys now that are taking their lives um, the ones that have been autopsied, they have severe CTE and it has a lot to do with the way we train, you know, heavy weapons training, breacher training. And then of course, you know, a lot of the explosives that we use overseas. So, um, if you are struggling, you know, mentally, you know, it, it may not be you guys. I mean, it may be, you know, a traumatic brain injury. And so another you, reason to get help that you don't know that you have, cause a lot of guys don't, Yep. you know, so uh, at a minimum, at least make sure that, uh, you know, that your wiring isn't fucking crossed. You know, I mean, to me, like you, you owe your family at least that fucking much, you know. But. And doctors don't understand it. That's a, that's <clears throat> been one of the big problems. Doctors don't understand it, but they're getting smarter. And there are some doctors who may not buy into it yet. So be if you're a spouse and, you know, you've got a military veteran who their behavior is starting to drastically change. And, uh, you know, they've been in combat or, you know, maybe they haven't. They could have, you know, a TBI and, you know, it could be CTE that's really causing yeah. pretty big damage. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. The other question was. Uh, just to shed some light on the, you know, and you already have, I mean, you, you know, the, the podcast kind of exudes that. But just the, the never give up, you know, you can always. You can always come back. I mean, you kind of yeah, man. About it, it's never it's never too late. Plant that in your mind. I mean, I I, I have, you know talk about uh, this this idea of getting off the X, and um, and you know it's a principle that we learn in special operations. I mean, I would think that maybe some of the basic infantry units learn it also. But the idea is this: that the X is the point of incident, attack, uh, and and in life, it's adversity. And it's, it's real easy to peop, for people to get stuck on the X. In a gunfight, it's easy to get stuck on the X. If you don't attack back or figure out how to get off the X quickly, the longer you sit on it, the, the more chances are you're going to get stuck, pinned down, die. Uh, and it's no different in life. I mean, as I started working with more wounded warriors and people that had been through hard moments, I was like, holy shit, man, everybody gets stuck on the X. So... But the, the, the founding principle is the faster you get off the X whether it's mentally, emotionally, um, or even physically, uh, the, the, the greater your chances of moving forward. Like movement is life, inertia is a deal. So, you know, I teach things on how to do that. You know, we developed a process, um, you know, and it's, I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, it takes action. It takes, you know, it's not a magic wand. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, it's just, it's never too late. Yeah. And, and it's never too late to start driving forward. And it, dude, it is hard. 
I mean, you know, being, being human's hard, yeah. you know, there are fucking hard moments. 2020, we've been hitting the face with the bat on a regular basis. We've been hitting the face with a big veiny cock. <laughs> At least I have. I don't know about you. I'm having nightmares yeah. about that. Uh, my, uh, sea voyage. <laughs> uh, fucking captain Steubing. Uh, if you could share a little bit about what, uh, kind of what you're up to now and, and where people can get a hold of you. Yeah, man, it's been an interesting journey. I, I ran a nonprofit for quite a few years and, uh, and, um, ended up phasing that down for a number of reasons. Um, one was because we weren't focused on, uh, brain injuries and PTSD and a good friend of mine was supposed to go through one of our programs and kill himself two weeks before the program started. Wow. So I was like, dude, you know, you need to be focusing on that. So that was one thing now. So I am a, um, <clears throat> I am an ambassador for the Gary Sinise Foundation. I'm on the uh, Veterans Council for the Concussion Legacy Foundation focused on CT and TBI. And I'm working with uh, Project Headstrong, which is a great group. If you're a veteran out there struggling, go to getheadstrong.org. Uh, they will have you seen, a, they will have you see a, um, a mental health professional within 24 to 48 hours oh, uh, awesome. off the record. And, and you got combat guys that are and gals helping with the intake so that you're not having somebody that has no fucking clue, you know, or can't relate to you. So I'm doing that. And then uh, I really have uh, just started to focus the most on trying to help people um, become the best version of themselves to just how do you, um, how do you build a, you know, on, I call it the overcome mindset. How do you deal with that adversity? How do you become a better leader? And, and whether it's, uh, whether it's a better leader, you know, at the, at the end of the day, really it comes down to being a better leader yourself. Yeah. Uh, and if you can become a better leader yourself, it translates to all aspects of your life and it leads you to build a better overcome mindset. Um, so, so all of that has just been growing. Uh, I wrote overcome last year, which really in, uh, all intents and purposes, the Trident is kind of the story where overcome is kind of the how to. And then in 2021, <clears throat> I'm uh, getting ready to launch a new program called Point Man for Life. And it's, I don't know, I just kind of had this epiphany that a lot of the things that I teach on are like the trademarks of a really good point man. Like, I mean, you know, when we were out there, like the really good point man, you were like, dude, no, I don't want, I don't want somebody else. I want that guy. Yeah. Like he's my point man. Yeah. Like, and, and, and I teach there's, there's four critical principles, uh, to, to be a point man for life or what makes a really good point man on the battlefield. And I feel like they're the exact same things on how you should live your life. And number one is a relentless belief in the mission. Like, you know, those guys, like no matter what goes wrong, they know what the mission is and dude, they're locked on it. And so many people in this life, they don't, they don't know their mission. They haven't defined it. If you leave the military, so many guys don't know what their new mission is. So you do have to figure it out. And then, you know, you got to believe in it. Uh, number two is uh, a clearly defined destination and that set course. So if you look at a destination as long-term goals, that set course is the short-term waypoints. But you got to define that stuff. And by defining it, you know, now you get your compass out and you're like, dude, I'm off course. 2020 has knocked me off course. Well, get your compass out, bro. It's not too late to get back on course. Um, number three is recognizing the, the, um, the risks and, and, and having situ awareness to see the indicators of, Hey, shit's about to go South. 
you know, so many people in this life, they don't do any of the risk analysis. They don't look at the risk. They don't take care of themselves and they, they never see the indicators. And then, you know, the next thing they know, you know, we all have friends that are like, holy shit, I never saw that coming, you know? Yeah. And we're like, Bro, yeah, that? bro. Like we've seen the signs for this for months, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then the last one is the ability to get off that X quickly as possible. So building a mindset of when shit goes south, I'm not going to lay here and feel sorry for myself. You know, you know, it's a mindset of immediate action drills, drive forward. So, so I'm launching that in uh, 2021. Uh, it's coming out with a planner. It's coming out with uh, an online course for, to help people, you know, cause I truly believe if you can live by those four principles, Life will be a lot easier. I mean, yeah. it, it gives you a a light in the darkness. Yeah, uh, it's great shit. Uh, positive stuff, and and again, you've you've lived it, you know. So I think, uh, you know, you're you're a huge inspiration to a lot of folks, myself included. And uh, and I just I appreciate uh, your friendship and uh, and you coming on the show, man. It's a great 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 and humbling and amazing story. So uh, thank you for coming. Uh, anything that you wanna wanna add before we uh, wrap this shit up? No, man. Likewise, brother. I appreciate yeah, you being out there uh, doing it, setting the example. You know, there are a lot of people that uh, love watching what you're doing. I, I always tell people you're the dog whisperer. So. <laughs> Whisper screamer, maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate it very much. Um, well, thank you much. Uh, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and coming on the show. And, uh, and thanks for sharing your story, my man. Yeah, man. Uh, if you guys want to find me, jasonredman.com is my website. You can learn more about me. If you're looking for these programs, they're not quite on there yet. We're kind of rebuilding and redoing the websites. So within the next month, they'll be ready, probably mid-December, end of December, ready to go. Are all and, your social handles on there as well? Yeah. Okay. Bottom of the website's all my social handles. Uh, I'm most active on uh, Instagram. Um, I did create a parlor account. So, you know. For the dick pics. Yeah, sure. Sure can't fuck. <laughs> Dude, I can't figure that thing out yet, though. No, I know. So, but uh, yeah, so I'm on all the socials and try and uh, and and I try and put out nothing but you know positive content on how to drive forward and and lead yourself and you know. But uh, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, people can talk to their blue in the face. At the end of the day, it it comes back to you. Yeah. You know, you have to get off that X. You have to drive yeah. forward. You got to lead yourself. You can, uh, you can lead a horse to water, right? Yep. And then hold his head under it. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all Mic Drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code MICDROP at checkout. That's two words, MICDROP at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD 
And all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. In terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And Resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean and off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther- uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Uh, as always, I want to thank, uh, again, Jay for, for spending the time to come, uh, talk with us and share his amazing story. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors and, uh, of course you guys, I'm looking right at you motherfuckers on the camera. And I, that's one of the, one of the comments I get your, your face is always hidden and okay, I'm staring right at you. All right. So screenshot it if need be. But, uh, I want to thank you guys for coming, uh, and tuning in every, every show, Without uh, without the support from you guys, I, I wouldn't be able to, to do this and, and bring stories like Jay's to uh, to the forefront. So uh, I, I really can't thank you guys enough for tuning in show after show and uh, and continuing to spread the word and, and make the show grow. So thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart from all you guys. And uh, just in true fashion, feel free to choke yourself if you disagree. And uh, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.